It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevic, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. Megaconvention.com. That's Megacon 2014. Be there. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. I sense a disturbance in the force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. I don't like this. No! Really pissed me off. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. At last! Where have you been? Welcome to Star Wars Monthly Monday, number 60. Holy frijoles, number <laughs> 60. I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with Scott Gardner. Welcome back to Star Wars. Yes, we're going to go ahead, we're going to jump straight into this episode because... We have quite the stack of email piling up here, and uh, I want to make sure that it gets addressed, and I want to make sure that it doesn't get to be an unruly stack of emails, so I want to make sure that we uh, get things addressed in a timely fashion. You guys have taken the time to write in, and we appreciate it, and we want to make sure that uh, we get everything addressed here. So I'm going to go ahead, unless you got any preamble. Not uh, not really. All right. You guys have to forgive me. I am uh, fighting a bit of a cold here, so I apologize for uh, for how my voice sounds this episode and if I sniffle a little bit. Uh, this first one here is simply entitled Star Wars Monthly Monday number 58. 
And this one is from our buddy Greg Kirkman, and he writes, Greetings, freaks. Thank you very much for replying to my email during Star Wars Monthly Monday number 58. It was way cool to hear you guys acknowledge my thoughts on Two True Freaks. Like I said, I'd love to sit in with you all someday if you'd have me. Just got to figure out the whole Skype thing. Well, we'd be happy to have you. Yeah, get that thing figured out, and uh, and we'll see what we can get worked out. This is if Chris or both of you ever does a Cronenberg and or Fly show, I'd love to be there. I'm a big fan of the man and his work. The Fly, in particular, has touched me in a way few films have. Well, show us on the, the doll. Fly touched, fly touched you, huh? you. Yes. <laughs> I doubt it would. I, I imagine that would be a vault of startling monster horror tales of terror show, but I'm sure you would be welcome to come on. You're a fan of that movie, right? I love that movie. Yes, please. If you guys do that show without me, that's it. We're done. We're done professionally. Yeah, I remember seeing that with you in the theater. I love that movie too. I love all David Cronenberg, and I imagine we'll probably get we'll probably do like a retrospective of him at some point. Yeah, you, you, you bastards already locked me out of the uh, "They Live" episode, so you, you can't you can't do it to me twice. Not with the fly. I like that movie too much. We're gonna have a <laughs> we're gonna have a twenty minute fist fight over that someday. <laughs> Put on the glasses. <laughs> I don't want to put on the glasses. Says, if I may be so bold, I'm an authority on that film. It's production history, it's deeper themes, etc. I have three drafts of the script and the Brundlefly statue that Sideshow Collectibles produced in 2007. I think it's fair to say he sounds like he's a little bit obsessed with the fly. You like you like the fly. You like the fly. Uh, he's, he's, he's been obsessed with the fly ever since the fly touched him. Yeah. <laughs> He says, heck, I'd be happy to sit in on just about everything uh, or Trek Wars uh, slash genre film related. Uh, certainly, I'd love to see you guys cover the Burn Trek books at some point. I've been on the ground floor uh, for those over at his forum, and it's been fun getting the inside info on each of those projects straight from the horse's mouth. And you know, the more I think about that, the more I'm totally down for that if we want to make that a project at some point. Because Lord knows the, the Trek comics we're covering at the moment <laughs> have been exactly thrilling me. So, yeah, I would be totally down for a scaling back coverage on those and maybe doing them the way that I did the original Marvel series at this point. Maybe do them as like one lump sum, like synopsis or something they continue to just suck in mass the way they have lately so yeah and get onto some actually good stuff like the burn stuff it's an idea anyway we'll see we'll keep but you actually get to see in all that horribleness you still get to see scotty just sucker punch people in the gut <laughs> uh let's see here greg continues he says oh and i didn't mean to imply that i never discovered girls i did indeed he says it's just that they're you know nuts Seriously, my one and only girlfriend experience didn't go well, and I've been licking my wounds for the past few years. Well, yeah, that's that's women for you, dude. <laughs> that's just how it works. Between who, his women experience licking his wounds and being touched by the fly, maybe he needs a psychiatrist. But... <laughs> so, anywho, now that you've uh, convinced me to overcome my natural shyness, I guess the floodgates are open. The fact that you guys are so friendly and welcoming with both guests and listener emails is what made me break out of my box and contact you. Well, that's I, that's nice. I appreciate you saying that. I, I'm we're we're glad to have helped. Uh, you'll be getting our bill shortly. Uh, yeah. Says uh, so on to wars talk. He says I grew up in the shadow of the original trilogy as a kid. Empire was my favorite movie ever. 
It's certainly, uh, it's certainly the best made of the six live action films. Best acting, best music, best cinematography by Peter Shasitsky, is that right? Who coincidentally became Cronenberg's DP of choice based on his work for Empire. I had no idea. I did not know that. Me neither. However, however, time... I'm sorry, that doesn't... This is however, comma, time, comma... I don't know what you're going for here. I'm wondering if something auto-corrected or something... I bet you it's supposed to be to me. However, to me, the secret history uh, book and my own analysis of the films has changed my perspective. I love the original trilogy, warts and all, and enjoy all six live-action films to varying degrees. But the so-called quote-unquote saga really is a patchwork quilt that makes uh, uh, that takes rather a lot of mental gymnastics to enjoy. The original Star Wars is a perfect self-contained popcorn movie, and I kind of think it works best that way, given where the series has gone. Now, Star Wars is a bloated, occasionally pretentious epic that's convoluted enough to be deemed largely for fans only at this point. Hmm. I don't know about that. No, I think he has a point, but... I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I see what he's saying. If it was for fans only, it wouldn't be as lucrative... Yes. Yes. I think largely, not to tangent us too much, but I think largely, I think this next movie is going to be very telling of where Star Wars stands at this point. I I think there's a heck of a lot riding on this new movie in a way that I didn't really think so until very recently. But that's that's a conversation for another time. As it gets closer and closer. Yeah. Yeah. So the original movie is breezy and fun, but after its success, Lucas apparently began suffering from Gene Roddenberry syndrome and decided that Star Wars was important. It doesn't sit well with me that Lucas constantly rethought the series as it went along. We went from Star Wars, a one-shot movie from the adventures of Luke Skywalker, to the six-part tragedy of Darth Vader. When you stop and think about it, it's absurd. In the original conception of the original film, Vader was just a henchman, a big bad guy uh, who was assigned by the Emperor, who was merely a crooked politician, to get the Death Star plans back. He certainly wasn't Luke's father, nor was Luke, uh, excuse me, was Leia Luke's sister. Ben Kenobi was a hermit, uh, wearing desert robes, not a Jedi uniform, not a pathological liar who was waiting for his friend's son to come of age and become uh, to come of age and become a Jedi pawn. I can't argue with anything you're saying there. I honestly, I, I mean, I've, I've felt that way for a long time. But, I mean, it's, it's the problem that you have when you take something like this and you start to add to it. I mean, well, you know, I mean, when it was originally made, maybe there was some thought that he was going to be doing Empire Strikes Back or right. something. Right. But I think the main thing, they were just trying to get it done and praying to God that they made their money back and would have a career after that and then once something like that i mean the thing about it is in 1977 star wars was huge like a cultural phenomenon it was like the beatles coming over in 64 and all of a sudden it went from being just a movie to that and once you've crossed that line there's really no going back it happens with musicians a lot from where they go from being famous to like insanely famous like michael jackson right where he went from being kind of um a quirky kid who could sing really well 
to being like you know bizarre and twisted because 90% of the world knew who he was and was saying so you know or whatever you know reasons led to that it changes everything it changes how and George George Lucas going it, it, it will put you into Roddenberry mode because all of a sudden George Lucas is thinking yeah I have kids and there's going to be kids watching this, so I don't want Greedo to, you know, Han to shoot Greedo first. And, you know, they start thinking about the message they're sending because all of a sudden they're realizing everybody's going to be watching it and paying attention to it. And it, and, and to some extent it ruins the spontaneity of, you know, the wonderfulness of it. But at the same time, what... What can you do? You can't take it all back, you know, and start right. from scratch. I I do understand. At least I I think I understand Greg's point because I I do agree with a lot of the points that he's making. I have long thought that Star, if you watch like Star Wars, the first film, mm-hmm. and then you you know like if you sit and watch the three of them in a row, they. The the latter films, so actually all of the latter films, you know, five, six, and then going back to the prequel trilogy, they all feel incredibly different than the first Star Wars movie. It, it's one of the reasons that I, I won't encourage people to watch them in episode order, but ra- ra- rather the release order. Because for one thing, Star Wars does stand on its own. It's the only one of the trilogy, or excuse me, of the saga that I think truly is a standalone motion picture. You don't need any other. That can be. Really. It's the only one that can be. But see, it was designed to be that way. Now, I don't agree. I don't believe Lucas that he had the entire story planned out and he knew exactly what the entire saga was going to unfold to be. I, I, I've never bought that. At the same rate, though, I do believe feel like Star Wars. Well, I do believe though that he had an idea of a saga in his head, not mm-hmm. fully formed, but just an idea of a saga. And when he realized that he wasn't going to be able to realize the entire thing, and he was only going to be able to do the one film. And that was going to be it. He chose what he thought would be the best standalone section of that yes. saga. Yes. Once that film actually was a hit, which surprised everybody, oh, and I'm sure he took himself, elements and story elements from later on. I'm sure he took lots of good elements from later parts in the story and pushed them into the front end too to have more. Oh, exactly. Exciting elements, so it ended up with like the most good stuff in it. Right. So while I do agree with everything that Greg says here that you know Vader wasn't the big bad he was just a henchman everything well yeah but again standalone movie now suddenly you realize ooh you know what I can actually do the rest of this saga the way I actually intended mm-hmm. it to be suddenly Vader goes from you know just you know the henchman guy the Frankenstein's monster right we have to, to suddenly he's the big bad and so it's a bit of a stretch, but it's not a bit of a stretch if, if you if you follow my meaning on that. So I, See, I, I like I, the fact that Star Wars has a different flavor than all the other movies in this. I actually like that a lot about it. The only thing that, that now bugs me retroactively is that I find Star Wars, the original film, to be the trickiest one to actually... You have to play the most continuity gymnastics with that movie in order to make it fit with the whole rest of the saga. That bothers me a lot because it's the original. It's the first one. You shouldn't have to do that, but you do in order to make it fit, and that that kind of bugs me. 
I don't mind it so much when it's a when it's a series of movies like say Planet of the Apes, for example. Every single movie doesn't match up with the last movie. That's fine. I you know you, you can play fast and loose in that. Yeah, so you it, get to expect it after a you couple get to movies. expect it. But when every other movie in the Star Wars saga more or less matches with each other, and it's the original one that doesn't match with the others, yeah, that that's kind of irritating. I, I I'm I've never been cool with that. And see, I know exactly what you mean about Obi Wan. He does now retroactively. Once you saw see the entire saga, especially if you watch it in episode order, you get to the fourth movie, which is the original movie, and you feel like, <laughs> yeah, this guy's yeah. You know, he never tells the truth. That, yeah, exactly. And I don't think that was ever the way that he was intended to be. He just comes off that way now retroactively. And yeah, I'm not, well, to fit not everything cool with together. It. That's, exactly. That's their way of fitting everything together. See, I think, I think Jedi was the movie that broke the seal. As far as that, as I'm concerned, like star Wars and empire, while empire definitely not being a standalone movie with a cliffhanger ending, it had its own feel to it at the same time. That was still star Wars. But it had a more sweeping Hollywood romance epic to it. It was almost an improvement. It was an improvement upon a lot of what Lucas did in Star Wars. And then Jedi was the one where the huge impetus was on it. It had to wrap things up. Right. It was this huge marketing thing. It was popular with little kids up to grandparents. So you had to appeal to everybody. And Jedi was the one where you started getting the awareness aspect of it, where you had Tarzan yells and Ewoks and right little little asides to the camera, sort of th- you know, not really, but you know, kitty and some kitty elements to it, where he was uh, like all of a sudden, you know, I have a responsibility to entertain the little kitties too in this, so I have to throw in some stuff for them. Whereas in Empire, there really wasn't anything like that. It was everything was in service of the story right and and i think after jedi every star wars movie that's been made after that has had you know easter eggs for the fans and kitty elements for the kitties more or less you know stuff that they feel that they have to put in um the way r2d2 and c3po have just sort of been reduced to just walking around and quipping with each other you know Right. With with the occasional thing thrown in for them to do. Right. Whereas with the original film, you know, it could be I, I think a valid argument could be made that they were the they were the central characters of the first They were movie. the central characters, but they were still kept and 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 they, they, they pull that off in these ones too. You could you could you could you know, rationalize it but it's it's not the same. It doesn't have the spontaneous feel in them because they've become such right. cultural icons, and the people who write it don't really want to take any risks with what R two and three PO are going to say. It's you know, so you're just sort of trapped after a while. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, this I've been thinking a lot along your lines that this this movie the the two thousand and what is it fifteen, 15 movie yeah. it's going to be. Uh, is, Which is going to set the pace, but you know, there's talks of a Pixar Star right. Wars movie, and which I stuff. fully, I'm just going to, I'm going to put it on the table right now. I fully expect, I predict that it will be bumped back again. I don't think they're going to be able to make their date. 
And that's just that's just off the top of my head. I have no evidence for that, but my gut tells me they are not going to be able to make that date because they haven't even cast the film yet, and it's what less than two years away at this point. To be so. on schedule, supposedly, from what I've heard, yeah. for to be on schedule, they have to be shooting shooting the main you know the main bulk of the footage. You know the live action footage this summer, right? Come summer. Now there's already been the news of the the script shakeup, where they fired the guy who wrote Toy Story three, right? Brought in Kasdan, and Kasdan and Abrams are going to write it. And a- Abrams is a good writer. Um, Super Eights was written by him, and it's a fantastic script. So I have a feeling it'll be J.J. Abrams coming up with a story and then Lawrence Kasdan going, all right, I'll write this out into the script and fix the things that I don't <laughs> think don't work. Right. I think that's a great thing. I'm really I'm excited about that because Lawrence Kasdan's a better writer than you and I, and we were stumped. Right. I don't know about that Toy Story guy. I think he's a good screenwriter and all, but uh, I have more faith in Lawrence Kasdan coming up with a viable Star Wars story. I'm still sketchy about it centering around the old cast, but yeah, once again, we'll, it, we'll could, it could it could work. We'll see. Um, it all depends on what the story is. <laughs> I had a dream. I had a dream. And it's funny because it reminds me of when I was a kid and I had my weird dream about Empire before Empire came out that I was watching it. And this one was with old Han Solo doing stuff. And I was sitting in the theater and I was thinking to myself, hey, you know what? He's pulling it off. All right, I'm buying this. So hopefully my dream is prescient. (laughs) That's all I remember about it. I don't remember what he was doing or what he was saying, but it was it was fairly passable. <laughs> fairly passable. It was it was cutting the mustard. <laughs> That's the review that you're going for in the New York Times. <laughs> fairly passable. Cuts the mustard. All right. Greg continues here. He says, uh, I've come to the conclusion that as important as the trilogy is to me, Star Wars may have been better served by remaining a standalone film, as was the initial plan, since everyone assumed it would uh, it would fail. The phenomenal success of the film, however, led to Splinter of the Mind's Eye being a mere spin-off novel rather than a true sequel story as it was intended to be in favor of the more elaborate Empire. And naturally, there shouldn't have been an Empire to strike back since the original film's crawl was tweaked in post-production so as to make the story self-contained. The Empire can't maintain control without the Death Star, and so the Rebels win by destroying it. End of story. The sequel really should have been Darth Vader Strikes Back. Instead, the opening crawl of Empire immediately uh, began the retcons by saying that the Death Star's destruction was only a setback. Basically, the success of the series is largely built on Lucas constantly reworking the story and then doling it out in pieces to eager fans who wanted to understand the full saga. As a marketing tool, it worked brilliantly. But for the fact uh, that it was a so well-made movie, uh, that it was so well-made, 
Empire could easily be seen as a coldly mercenary commercial for toys and the next movie uh, and the next movie in the series. See, I don't... Man, I, I think you I make disagree. excellent points. I really it's a do. Good point, but, yeah, but I don't. If it was a mercenary ad for toys, it was the best made oh, mercenary yeah. ad for toys ever made. You know, it was it had the best story attached to it and stuff. But sure enough, I mean, I mean, he learned his lesson with Star Wars and knew with M- uh, and Empire. Man, what a group! You got walkers. <laughs> when I think of movies that are made for toys, I think of movies like Batman and Robin, uh, Transformers, GI Joe. Movies that may or may not entertain, and but they're come mentally from devoid lives. of all substance. You know, and but, Empire's not that. Empire, in my opinion. No. Is the finest motion picture as, as far as like crafting goes? I, I just think that's the movie to point to to go. That's how you make a good movie, right there. That that's just it's a perfect example of a movie that has every damn thing that I want in one movie. I just think Empire is a, a brilliantly well put together movie. So, you know, did it? It also kind of did the impossible. It was know. better than the original, yeah, which doesn't happen often at all sometimes well, you especially film- when the original is was you know i mean I, when star wars was coming out i remember opening up the paper every day and going yes because it was still playing at the theater yep. for its record hundredth week at the theater and like you know it was like time movie best film of the year and then all of a sudden it's like the greatest film of all time star wars you know and nobody was really arguing with it at the time Right. So to follow that up with something even better and shaded deeper, right, it's quite an accomplishment. And and credit goes to George Lucas at that point in his career for knowing to step back on it and get another director and get another a, a scriptwriter and really work it. A lesson that he seemed to forget after Jedi. <laughs> right. He, uh, he continues here, he says, And of course, the big draw of the prequels was the fulfillment of decades of teases and promises about the original trilogy's backstory, not the dubious merits of the prequel films uh, that were actually produced. See, I'm starting to wonder here if you're applying a standard to Empire that really fits more with the with the prequels. I'll give you this argument when it comes to the prequels, but not as, as uh, applied to Empire. I would even give you part of this argument as applied to Jedi because I still I, I don't think Jedi's near as strong a movie as the the first two. Oh, I no. think it does suffer a lot of uh, prequelitis you know? and, and doofiness, mm-hmm. and you know the cast being burned out and not really into it a little bit. You can see that. I think the the I think the third movie. I think Return of the Jedi. For all that it did get right, for as awesome... I mean, I enjoy the hell out of that movie. Don't get me wrong. I I love Return of the Jedi. But for everything that's right in that movie, I think some of the accusations that you're you're applying toward Empire actually fit much, much better with Jedi. I think by that time, it was... I don't want to say collapsing under the weight of the phenomenon, but I think the phenomenon was taking a toll on the quality of the picture. I think clearly that was the case that was part of the problem with return of the jedi was that 
it was it was the first one where you could see a few of the seams around the edges. Exactly. But yeah. Even could, the even through my first viewing, there were a couple points where I was just like, ah, okay. But then it's gone. You right. Know? But I, I think it was, you know, what, to the point you were saying before about, you know, suddenly it's a phenomenon. They don't want to take as many chances. They don't want to take characters off the table, things like that. I think that was clearly in evidence in Return of the Jedi. The fact that uh, I think in retrospect, now that I'm an adult and, and a, a little more emotionally detached, I think that Harrison Ford actually made some really good points about where he wanted his character to go. And oh, the, yeah. the fact that they didn't go in those directions because they realized, well, marketing, you know, I think when you start putting those kind of decisions in, that's what affects your story. They didn't seem to have those qualms with The Empire Strikes Back because The Empire Strikes Back still has a grit and an edge to it that I think the original that's part of the appeal yes. of the original film. Empire is a little cleaner picture because you know it takes one, place, it place in the snow places. it takes place in a beautiful futuristic city so it's not quite as gritty. Dagobah. Yeah, well yeah, Dagobah, yeah. But I, I just think it still managed to maintain that edge even though it was slowly mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the bridge between you know your classic Star Wars that it, that's much more—I don't want to say realistic, but it didn't have that mystical element. It, you know, the Force was there, but it wasn't the the Jedi and their struggle against the Sith is not the plot point of Star Wars. It becomes that by the time you get to Return of the Jedi. So, I mean, Empire Stars is a nice bridge between those two worlds, and I like that. That's one of the things I really like about Empire. Again, I think it's a perfect film. It's balanced because you don't get too much of one way or the other. You got just enough of the that realistic uh, type of story, you know, with with Han and space pirates and the battle against the Empire. And then underneath all that, you have that under, undercurrent of the brewing battle between, you know, dark and light, Luke and, and Vader. By the time you get to Jedi, it's full blown, you know, Sith versus Jedi and. And it's always bugged me that that's where everything went after Jedi. Everything in the EU, everything in the prequel, everything became, well, this saga is really about the battle between the Sith and the and the Jedi. No, it's not. It wasn't ever. And I want to continue here because I think, actually, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, that Greg makes this exact point here. So I'm just going to continue on. Uh, he says... Uh, the thing that sits least well with me is that Lucas clearly started uh, out telling one story, got people talking about one of the biggest cliffhangers in movie history uh, by using a whopper of a retcon in Empire, then proceeding to claim that the tragedy of Vader, an entirely different story, was always the plan, which is unfortunate. I'd love to step into a parallel universe where the original backstory was adhered to and where Luke finally defeated the monster who killed his father. Instead, Ben Kenobi is a liar, and Vader, a mass murderer, somehow gets into Jedi heaven. <laughs> there's, there's a major cognitive disconnect for me between the Vader of Star Wars and the Vader of Jedi. I, I will completely agree with you. says, so anyway, I don't want to sound like a basher or anything. I love Star Wars in all its forms. The bizarre and twisted evolution of the series is endlessly fascinating to me, uh, good and bad alike, just providing some food for thought, and I, I think you've done that expertly. Since as for episode seven, I'm on the same page as Scott in that I've made my peace with Star Wars in 2005 when Revenge of the Sith came out. What other story is there to tell? What story needs to be told? 
Lucas was doing his usual whitewashing when he said uh, that there was never a serious plan for the second trilogy. This is true from a certain point of view, since he got burned out after only three films and crammed the end of the story into Jedi. Of course, Disney is banking on the notoriety of the sequel trilogy instead of just doing non-numbered Star Wars films. The episode numbers bring a certain expectation, after all. For me, Star Wars was, is, and should always be the story of Luke Skywalker. I, I don't disagree with you. Since that story is done, really. There are a lot of potential pitfalls with Episode 7, as you guys discussed in uh, that early TTF episode. This new trilogy needs a reason to justify its, its existence. More Star Wars for the sake of more Star Wars is not necessarily a good thing. I'd almost prefer to see the series laid to rest and become a fond memory rather than get trotted out again and again as a hollow cash cow that caters to the mindless summer blockbuster market. Star Wars was Lucas's baby and was rooted in his morals, quirks, and style. While I'm sure that Abrams can ape the style pretty well, I do not believe that he can capture the underlying heart and morals of the existing films. More to the point, he has completely eviscerated my beloved Star Trek, and I cannot stand living in a world where he has been rewarded for it with the keys to Star Wars 2. As horrible a thing as it is to say, a, a bitter, spiteful part of me wants to see Episode 7 crash and burn just to punish Abrams and to put Star Wars out of its misery. I don't want to see a septuagenarian Lando having a threesome with Twilight Twins, you know, or an Abrams mystery box holocron. Thanks again for acknowledging my email. Keep on freaking, Greg Kirkman. <laughs> Holy shit, Greg. I mean, wow. you talk about giving us something to chew on, buddy. We could make an entire episode out of this. <laughs> Honestly, we really could. I do not disagree with you. I, I really I don't. don't. I mean, I don't either. I just have a different point of view on it. Right. Abrams. I think Abrams is a Hollywood prick. I think um, George Lucas, you know, well, now he's a, he's establishment, but he's made his own establishment, which is a, a totally different thing. But he, you know, George Lucas definitely was a renegade filmmaker with political views and a weird sense of he was a total hippie style in especially in his early days let me ask and, you if, if i just have a question see if this makes any sense to you because something just occurred to me is it possible for abrams to be simultaneously a hipster douchebag when it uh -huh. comes to star trek but a true nerd yes. fan when it comes exactly to Star Wars. That's exactly where I was going. That's exactly where I was going. Because, well, he's never going to be George. He's not a maverick like George Lucas. Uh, every uh, I see him and he's 100% Hollywood status quo, whatever. But at the same time, those are the people practically, you know, um, who are getting movies done in a practical sense. And he's definitely reminds me of all the 80s Spielberg spin-offs all the directors it's and you know um Super 8 was a Spielberg produced film in in the style of like that like Poltergeist and stuff like that so he understands that kind of filmmaking i mean he admitted he had he just had no business 
with Star Trek. And I'm cynical enough to believe that he used Star Trek as his demo reel for Star Wars. Right. That there might have been talk about him in the first place and was like, I'm going to show him what kind of Star Wars movie I can make with Star Trek. And, I mean, he admitted he, he was not a fan of Star Trek. He didn't really get it, although he backpedaled into, well, I watched a lot of episodes and I get it now. Well, and his writers didn't seem to get it. But he is a Star Wars fanatic, avowed Star Wars fanatic, and um, at least on a visceral action level, you know, there there's scenes in the Star Trek, the first Star Trek, and Into Darkness that are very Star Wars level chase action sequences. Mm-hmm. So he understands that. And he understands story, and he understands characters, which, <laughs> I mean, that's like saying your clerk at 7-Eleven, that should be like saying your clerk at 7-Eleven understands how to use a cash register. You should be able to say that about anybody who gets a movie, but these days, you, you can't, you just can't, especially in blockbuster territory. There's a lot of people who, if they do understand character, they don't take any time to develop it because they know they don't have to right and they'll still get their money but he he does know how to do that so with a good script and the fact you know i mean him not being a star trek fan he might not have really understood how seriously people take their star trek but i think he understands that with star wars i think he understands that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny um, there's going to be a lot of desire for it not to be like the prequels in a lot of ways, to not have those clunky whole 20 minutes of clunky, you know, exposition dialogue sequences and stuff like that. He's right. going to know to keep the action moving, He, you know, and hopefully he's going to get you... All I care is that they get you on the same page with the character so you can identify with them on some level or say, that's my Luke, that's my boy, that's Luke Skywalker, you know? And, uh, like in the Crystal Skull, where, where the one scene where, you know, the one guy's yelling in the beginning, you don't know who he is, you don't know him. <laughs> right. And, uh, I was just like, yes, this is an Indiana Jones character moment, you know? Um, so if he has a sense of that, I'm thinking we almost can't get that. They almost have to be better than the prequels. Mm-hmm. Faint praise as that is, right? I guess. But I like the prequels, so you know, ergo, I'm probably gonna like this movie. You know, I'm thinking. Man, I'm glad I'm not making it. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine the pressure? I'm under a lot of pressure just trying to think about it. The problem is... Anticipate it. The problem for me is that I hope that they are feeling pressure. They are. This has been been a big thing is that I'm, I'm... well, I, I don't want to give too much away because everybody they're, they're, on every level is feeling pressure on that. Every Disney executive, everybody, uh, you know, 
whoever it was who managed and mitigated this deal is probably just like, you know, praying that they're not going to end up with their head on a platter. They're either going to be right. paraded through the middle of town as a hero or, you know, the most reviled person ever. So, yeah. Well, there's a, there's an episode shaping up behind the scenes. I, I, I'm just going to tease it. I have no idea when it's going to actually hit. It hasn't been recorded or anything yet, and uh, we're, we're still working out the details. But there's an episode shaping up in the background that's basically going to address an issue that I know is on the minds of a lot of Star Wars fans right now concerning the new film, a new series of films, and the existing EU. So mm. just... Keep your ears open. Uh, it'll be coming down the pike. But essentially, I think there's a lot more writing on this film than than they may be taking into consideration. So I'll just tease it that way. Um, we still have a number of emails to work through, so I want to make sure we keep things moving along here. So I'm going to blow right into the next one. And we've got one here from our buddy Tom Panarese, and he writes, A Last Look at Marvel Star Wars. He says, Scott and Chris... So I've been listening to Star Wars Monthly Monday on a regular basis since your coverage of Empire. And even though I was never a regular reader of the Marvel Star Wars comics, that series is what kept me coming back month after month. Last Christmas, I got the first volume of the Star Wars A Long Time Ago Omnibus. And just a week ago, uh, Volume 5 was under my Christmas tree. So I was able to finish my complete read of the series. I had already listened to all of your episodes on the post-Jedi comics, and while I guess I knew quite a bit of, uh, about what was going to happen, your shows made me want to read the books for myself, something I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Well, awesome. He says, the Joe Duffy, Cynthia Martin era is an underrated one, I must say. And it's uh, made me think a lot about Star Wars in the 1980s, especially that post-Jedi period where the movies faded from the public consciousness, or at least uh, kid consciousness, until it was finally revived in the early 1990s. Say what you will about Heir to the Empire and the Zahn trilogy as a whole, but I was glued to every page of that series because it was so awesome to have new Star Wars stories in my 14-year-old hands. Anyway, you mentioned during your coverage that Lucasfilm uh, definitely interfered with the series in its latter days, and that interference more than likely contributed to the book's death. I can see that, and I'm disappointed. The Nagai and the Zeltrons were great additions to the series, even if both races uh, looked like they uh, just walked straight off a shoot for a music video. <laughs> so I'd love to ask Duffy and Martin if the Zeltron similarities to Starfire and the Tamaranians over the New Teen Titans is a coincidence, especially since issues 102 through 107 were published during the whole Starf uh, Starfire's wedding storyline. And despite that storyline's problems, the Titans were still uh, selling pretty well. You know, I never even thought of that. I it's never thought of that either. Right. Yeah, they really do have a lot of strong similarities. Never even occurred to me, but he's absolutely right. Uh, at any rate, I wonder what Duffy had originally planned for the Alliance versus Nagai's storyline before uh, she had to wrap it up so quickly. The idea of an outside invader coming in and trying to take advantage of the instability that resulted from the destruction of the Empire is way more interesting than the umpteenth diplomatic mission uh, by Mon Mothma and Princess Leia. Which brings me to the point I was uh, making earlier regarding Lucasfilm and Star Wars in the 80s. I know that in 1985, Kenner released another wave of figures that were not tied to any of the movies and were simply called The Power of the Force. 
there were a few cool uh there were a few pretty cool figures and vehicles in that line. I remember really wanting the Tatooine skiff but never getting it. But it faded really quickly, as did the droids and Ewoks toy lines. In fact, I wonder why Lucasfilm felt that going with Saturday morning cartoons was the way to go. I turned eight years old in 1985, and while I still got up for my cartoons on Saturday mornings, most of the new toys that I owned and would own for the next few years were tied into syndicated weekly cartoon series, Transformers, Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, Thundercats, Voltron, etc., in fact, Masters of the Universe, Transformers, Voltron, Voltron and G.I. Joe were already popular by 1985, and Thundercats was close behind. So I wonder why Kenner and Lucasfilm uh, didn't look at this and say, let's make a daily syndicated Star Wars cartoon and tie it into the comics and toys just like G.I. Joe. All I can think of is that Lucas, at that time, maintained tight control over all of that stuff including you know the toy rights and you know he that's where he's made his money really is that he was the owner of all those marketing rights and everything he was smart enough to have made that deal even not expecting star wars to be you know much more than a blip on a you know momentary blip on the radar that's where he made all his money and i, I i'm guessing it's just my guess but i'm thinking that maybe he just didn't want to go that route. He didn't want Star Wars to just become kitty fodder, you know, selling toys. But I, I don't know. a lot of work at that time, too. Yeah, it, it's but, hard to say. Because not only would you have to license it out to somebody who was making it, but then you would get the same thing that you'd always have, where you'd have to sort of lord over it and make sure everything was to your liking, which is frustrating, I'm sure, for Lucasfilm and for the people who have to make the cartoon. Right. Well, Especially. plus by that point, by 85, I'm trying to think what... Wasn't Lucas kind of into his phase where it's like, I, I want to do smaller independent films and become a true filmmaker again? And wasn't, wasn't that the it, era where he was doing more of that sort of thing? So it seemed Howard to me like... <laughs> he what? Howard the Duck. But yeah. there was like Hollywood murder mystery or something like that, right. or a Manhattan murder mystery, I think it was. Right, and Tucker in- and stuff like that. But I mean, it seemed to me that for a while, and again, just my impression, but I, for his time there, it seemed like he was almost like, I don't know, like embarrassed is necessarily the right word, but definitely like burned out yes. on Star Wars. Like he was just kind of, all right, let's, you know, I, this is not what I want to be remembered for. You know, I think I, he I, was I, also raising his kids. I think he was right. divorced and raising his kids right. and probably was doing that, you know. I think for a time he was content to just let the Star Wars money continue to, to trickle in, but kind of let the whole thing die down for a bit. I think he just got tired of that being his claim to fame, frankly, and the, he was hoping the whole thing would just kind of die down, maybe even possibly go away at one point. I'm not. I'm not really sure. But that was just kind of the impression I always had during that time. Anyway, then again, uh, Tom continues, then again, in hindsight, uh, or hindsight is twenty twenty. he says, and by 1985, the market was definitely flooded with toys and cartoon tie-ins. For all we know, a daily Star Wars cartoon uh, would have burned out as quickly as Voltron did. Still, reading these issues and listening to your shows reminded me of how dead Star Wars was from 1985 to 1991, which is something I think a lot of people forget or are not aware of because they didn't live through it. But we did, and I do remember that time. 
yeah, Star Wars did kind of just go away there for a while. Anyway, Tom continues, he says, and uh, what it was like to honestly, quote-unquote, forget about the movies for a while. It was a peculiar uh, period, and I'd love to see what, if anything, Star Wars-related was coming out during that time. Maybe the first iteration of Star Tours? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that came out... I was still in the service at the time, so it was sometime between 86 and 90. I want to say the first Star Tours, or the first Star Tours iteration was out in Disneyland, and I want to say that was like 87, 88. Yeah, something I was like that. 88, yeah. The Star, the, the one out here at, uh, in, in Florida, well, Hollywood Studios didn't open up until 89, and I'm pretty sure that was an opening day attraction for that park, if I'm not mistaken. But like I say, the, there was the original iteration at Disneyland, and I have the issue of Starlog that's cover featured with the opening of, uh, of Star Tours, so I'd have to look it up. But I'm, I'm thinking it was. Somewhere between 86 and, and 89. I just can't remember the exact year. Uh, he says, well, Wikipedia shows RPG modules, and that's about it. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head, dude, honestly, there were three issues from Blackthorn that were Star Wars 3D comics that mm-hmm. came out. They're actually reprinted in the omnibus that we've been covering stories out of. Beyond that, there was, uh, I think it was six like young adult novels that were set post um, Return of the Jedi that don't seem to be in any continuity anywhere. I can't remember that. I remember one of them is like something like the glove of Darth Vader and something about Mount Yoda or something. I've never, I, I tried reading the first and they were so stupid. I couldn't get through them. I, I picked them up just because they had the name star Wars on them. Sure. Beyond that. I mean, I, it was a trickle of stuff. I mean, like the barest little handful. Star Wars really did go away for a while, for, for roughly about about five years. Because once Marvel Star Wars uh, got canceled, and you know, it was that period between the end of that and when the first Tron, uh, Thrawn book came out, the the first Timothy Zahn book, and that was ninety ninety one. So yeah, about five years. It just kind of went away you know and i don't think that those periods are necessarily a bad thing sometimes things need to go away for a little while to to allow you to they have enough forward momentum to carry them through five ten even 20 years sometimes look at star trek oh yes you know star trek went off for what like 10 it was like a 10 year gap between the end series and and the first movie I think sometimes those things actually really help because, you know, what are the, the you know, they're cliched sayings, but it's like, you know, ab- absence makes the heart grow fonder and, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. I, I think that's true. I think one of the reasons why, you know, there's so many Star Wars fans out there that, you know, they, they say they're Star Wars fans, they're dedicated, they love their Star Wars, but, eh, I don't bother reading the books or, eh, you know, Clone Wars, who cares? I don't watch that show. They forget what it was like during those Wayne periods where there wasn't anything. And you, you know, whatever <laughs> came to out, pick or choose. exactly, yeah. you know, during those, those lean years where there was very little, man, if something came out, even if it was crap, like Star Wars 3D number two, you picked it up and loved it because that's all that there was, you know, it's, it's Star Trek had the same thing. They had a long line of shit novels 
but they were all New York bestsellers because that's all the new Trek that there was, yep. man. There was nothing else out there to choose from, so you, you took what you got and you loved it. So, yeah, I you know, there's something to be said for those lean years. I mean, Star Wars at this point, frankly, it, it I think it could kind of stand right now to maybe go away for a little while. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. It's not you know, going to happen. We're, we're ramping right back up again after a relatively... unfortunately, yeah. I won't say unfortunately, but, you know, it, you know, time's going to be the, you know, the big decider on that. We're going to see how that's going to work. But it, it might have been to this new movie's benefit, you know, again, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but it might have really been to this new movie's benefit that after Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars had gone away, because that was what? By the time this movie comes out, that's 10 years. If after Revenge of the Sith there had been some sort of weird Star Wars moratorium, man, that could really help feed into this new movie coming along, you know? Instead, we've got a pretty steady diet of Star Wars that, frankly, I get the feeling a lot of people have largely kind of just bitched about and not really appreciated, you know? And and I'll include myself in a lot of that, too, because I... I finally burned out on Clone Wars. I just felt like, eh, it's good, but I don't need to pay attention to it. Whereas if that was all there was for a while to, to keep me going until the next film, maybe I would have been a little bit more appreciative and a little more attentive. Well, I, here's I don't the know. thing. I was watching Clone Wars, and I think I watched it a little further than you before I trailed off. Mm-hmm. But I was, it, was getting, it was getting really good. And the whole run was still, I thought, solidly good with moments of, like, eh, and then some moments of spectacular, awesome Star Wars-ness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I just sort of trailed off on it. And if it had been the only thing, I would definitely would have seen all of Clone Wars, like, two or three times. Right. I just found uh, someone who took the, was it Tartakovsky? Or Tarkovsky, Tartakovsky, who did the first Clone Wars cartoon, the seller. Uh, yeah, that name sounds familiar, yeah. yeah. Samurai Jack. Yeah. I just found that all collected into one video on YouTube. Oh, wow. And uh, I posted it up on the Two True Freaks Facebook page. And I was watching it going, oh, my God, I forgot how awesome oh, this yeah. was. And yeah. that did sort of come out of a... No, that came, well, it was sort of between... Between films, Episodes yeah. two and three. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I told, there's been so much stuff, I totally forgot how amazing it was and got caught up in it again. And now I'm sort of thinking about watching the CGI Clone Wars now. <laughs> well, let's see. Tom wraps up his letter here. He says, sorry about the long email. No, don't be sorry, dude. He says, but thanks for uh, entertaining my thoughts. I'm enjoying the Indiana Jones coverage and might try and track down some of those back issues, especially since I'm not sure they're collected in a trade anywhere, and I'm looking for another series to track down anyway. Keep up the great work. I can't wait to see what's coming next. All the best. And again, that's from our buddy Tom Panneries. And Tom, they, the, they were in an omnibus. Weren't yeah, they? I was just going to say that your your conclusion here shames me and makes me realize we don't. I don't think I mentioned this near enough. Yes, this Indiana Jones stuff that we are covering, the Marvel Indiana Jones series, is fully collected in omnibus form, just like the Star Wars omnibuses. 
I don't know the volume numbers off the top of my head. Like right now, we're up to we're going to be covering issue sixteen this episode. I couldn't tell you what volume number it is, but they are the entire series has been collected in omnibus form. You can find them. Um, you know, of course, they're you know in bookstores. They're you know go to Amazon.com, use the Two True Freaks link, and even though we don't get a cutback on it, I'll just be honest and tell you, dude, you can find those things on eBay, dirt friggin' cheap. I mean, really, really cheap. Like a, a full omnibus, like five bucks free shipping. I've seen them that cheap on eBay. So Ooh, yeah, they're they're out. looking for those. Yeah, I mean, they're out there to be found. Now, again, I, the ones I've seen, I have no idea what stories are in there. They may or may not be the Marvel Star Wars in, or excuse me, the Marvel Indiana Jones stories, but I, I have seen them. The the problem why I think they're so cheap is that the quality of the Indiana Jones ones, frequently the arts just. I, I'm I'm led to believe that the Dark Horse stories are really really good, but the art is frequently like crap. You know, I mean, really bad art. And you know, a lot of I, I get the feeling a lot of people are just like me. They're more visual. You know, I, I can forgive a a really lousy story that has uh, fantastic art a lot easier than I can forgive you know something that has. A great story, but just crap art. I, I just I, I'm more visually in tuned, I guess, with comics than I am, you know, in tune. I don't with know the story. stuff based on the whole Spielberg Lucas world. I think they should focus on making making sure the visual is good. Right, absolutely. All right, uh, I for I, I'm so sorry that we're going uh, really long on this one, but I, I got two more I do want to get through real quick because they are super short. Uh, actually, I'm going to skip that one real quick and come back to it. I'm going to make that our final one because I think there will be discussion on that as well. We got another one here from Greg Kirkman. Uh, this one is uh, just entitled Star Wars Monthly Monday number 59, which was last episode. He has a comment about something you and I were speculating about. It says, Dear Freaks, regarding page 126, panel 2 of the Wild Space Omnibus, it says, We are looking at Leia and Giles from behind and through a practice target that Leia just blasted a hole in. That panel confused me for a second there, too. And that's from Greg Kirkman. Uh Remember there was that one panel we were looking at going, what what the hell are we looking at? And we couldn't tell what it was. That's what it was. And I don't think Greg's the only one that clued us in on that. Now, he's the only one that emailed, but I do believe I received a couple of messages through Facebook as well that said, uh, oh, by the way, dude, that's what you're actually looking at here. And it was the same explanation about uh, the, the practice target. Makes sense. And I saw it once he explained it, and I looked at it again. It made perfect sense. But at the time, I, I just could not make heads or tails of that. So thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Last one here. And I could be wrong, but I think this may be a new emailer. Uh, Now, he gives actually two names here. I'm seeing in the subject line, it says his name is Chris Brawley, B-R-A-L-Y. But then he signed it, Chris Brawley, B-R-A-W-L-E-Y. So, Chris, write in again and let us know what your correct last name is here. I'm going to say Brawley. I hope that's correct. I hope I'm not butchering your name. He just uh, entitles his is short and sweet. It just says uh, his title is Star Wars is headed back to Marvel. It says, hey, freaks, I just caught this and wanted to pass it along. And it's a link to a news story on uh, StarWars.com. News, Lucasfilm, and Mar- uh, Marvel join forces to publish Star Wars comics and graphic novels. Uh, it says, by the way, I've tried repeatedly to register with the forums on your website to no avail. Any suggestions? Uh, yes. Stop trying to register with the forum and just join the Facebook group. Because as much as I hate to admit it, I think our forum's dead. 
Um, I tried to revive it. Uh, now, granted, I didn't try very damn hard, I'll admit, but I tried to revive it uh, a couple of weeks back. And while there's still a few lurkers, nobody really seemed to be there anymore. There really didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest in the forum anymore. Uh, it does seem like even the, the most diehard holdouts finally gave up and decided to come on over to our Facebook group. So I encourage you to, uh, to come on over to Facebook and uh, look us up. You know, it's just you know, Facebook. I, th- I think it's Facebook slash Two True Freaks, I think, or Two True Freaks network or two true freaks group or something like that but you'll find if you do a search you know a word search for two true freaks on facebook you'll find us and uh and just send us a friend request over there but that's where uh the the bulk of our activity is going on these days um in regards to the rest of your email though um star wars headed back to marvel again this could this could be an entire show but I wanted to make sure to address this this episode because, again, you know, by this point, this is almost old news because this story hit like days after we released our last episode. This always seems to happen to us. We release Star Wars Monthly Monday, and you know, it's the first Monday of the month, and then some big Star Wars news hits, and then by the next time the next episode's out, we've forgotten to even cover it. I wanted to cover it this time because I didn't want to forget to touch on this. This story hit. And I gotta be honest, I, I don't want to sound like I'm taking our listeners to task because you guys know I love you. But man, I saw so many of you guys posting just the most negative, rotten comments on like Facebook and stuff, or you're emailing me or messaging me, and just wow, a lot of people were down about this idea. And it killed me. I'm thinking, are these not the same people that have listened to us go on now for over five years extolling the virtues of Marvel Star Wars? And but I bet you if we were extolling the virtues of Dark Horse, there'd be a a, a big audience for that too. Oh, so this there's is a tr- lot of people mourning that the demise of that. I'm not trying to take away from anybody who is legitimately mourning the loss of, of Dark Horse Star Wars, and I will freely admit that in the last I'm not sure exactly how many years it, it's it's been a good long while now. I don't know five ten years something like that. That Marvel, or excuse me, that Dark Horse has done some extraordinary work with Star Wars. I, I don't deny. Well, in, many, in many ways, you know, as far in a Star Wars context, better than the Marvel Star Wars. You know, I, in I a think lot so. Ways. I'll agree with that. However, and I, you know, I, 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 again, I can't be objective when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will admit a, a lot of it is my childhood. A lot of it is my nostalgic feelings and, and fondness for Marvel Star Wars speaking here. But to me, I'm thrilled. Star Wars to me is coming home where it belongs at Marvel well, in Comics. A, in a purely egotistical sense, I was just like, holy shit, how awesome is it that Scott and I are just sort of hanging on? And I believe. Like at the end of this episode, we'll be pretty much We're saying pretty much goodbye yeah. to the classic Marvel Star Wars. This is the end of Infantino. Yep. Any connection to Marvel now is just because it got printed under the Marvel banner in Britain. Right. But I think everything else that we're pretty much covering in this now are like British writers and artists yep. doing some Star Wars stories. So this is it. We're saying goodbye to Infantino this month mm-hmm. after just jumping back and getting a little refreshment. But then, you know, and 
even if it is a couple years, we have plenty of great Star Wars comics in the interim to cover the space. But eventually, this show could be right back to Marvel Star Wars. Mm-hmm. We could be doing Marvel Star Wars number one, which I'm going to guess will be the first part of the adaptation of the new movie. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled. That's pretty cool. I'm absolutely thrilled. I understand. How, how awesome is it that the life worked out like that? Oh, for you yeah. And I? You know, I'm, yeah, I, 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 it's faded. You know, that's, that's just how I feel about it. This this was meant to happen. I'm excited. Now, I, I have repeat. I have received repeated statements from friends of mine and warnings. Dude, don't get your hopes up. It's not going to be the same. They're not going to call up David Michelinie and ask him to write this. They're not going to bring in Walt Simon to draw this. I understand. Please believe me. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I'm not thinking that they're going to pick it up with issue 108 and just continue like it never. I, I understand that, okay? However, doesn't stop me from being excited. I understand it's not the same people. It's not even the same. I mean, not even the company. same company, really. I mean, it, it's all new creators. It's all new suits. It's it's an entirely different entity. Marvel is not the Marvel that it was in 1986 when this book ended. I understand all of that doesn't stop me from being extremely excited. I'm really psyched for where this is going. And again, I don't want to tip my hand too much for the EU show that I want to do, but I will just say this. Man, I I wish people would be more positive about where Star Wars is going. There seems to be a lot of doom and gloom, a, a lot of uh, you know doomsayers out there saying, "Oh, you know the EU is going to go away, and they're going to scrap everything that I know." And where's it going to go into another dimension? And then they hit you with a with a Men in Black <laughs> pencil, and then you forget that it ever existed. Well, it's see, still going to be I, on your bookshelf. No, they're no, not no, going to no, run in like see that. But don't. That's the thing. Don't do that because that that to me. I understand when people do that because people do that to me with Superman all the time. They're like, well, somebody didn't come take all those comics out of your house. They're still – no, no, no. I understand what they're saying. It's like when – it's like if a friend or a relative was to die and then somebody just says to you, well, nobody's going to take your memories away. You still have the well, – right. no, but I would gladly trade those memories for another day with my friend or my relative. So I understand where people are feeling a legit grieving process. But what I'm trying to say is – I, I think you're putting – I think you're having the funeral before this is even dead. You know what I mean? There has been absolutely zero, zero confirmation that anything is happening to the EU. Mm-hmm. Disney has not and Marvel have not come out and said, hey, all that stuff that you've been invested in for the 20 years between – well, actually, it's a lot more than 20 at this point. But the the years between Return of the Jedi and now, eh, we're just going to wipe it off. Nobody has said that. There's been a hell of a lot of speculation that that's what's going to happen, and hell, it may happen. But what I'm trying to say, I mean, that was say, a, that was happening to, all the time with Lucas. So what I want to point out, though, is that until it's announced, until it happens, it hasn't happened, and y'all need to just chill out a little bit about it because everybody is so doom and gloom and negative about it, and it's just killing me because we don't know anything yet. I would like to believe, and maybe maybe this makes me the most naive fool in the world for thinking this, but I'm going to be honest, this is what I think. 
I would like to believe that somewhere when they're having these meetings and they're trying to figure out episode seven and the Marvel people are trying to figure out how are we going to, you know, bring Mar- uh, star Wars back into Marvel and, and create new, I'm, I'm hoping really hoping against hope that they are taking all of this stuff into account and that they're not just going to simply wipe the slate clean. Well, let me put it this way. The ages of the people we're talking about when we're talking about the suits and stuff, those people are about our age, man. Mm-hmm. They, a lot of them are maybe are there at their position at Disney because of Star Wars, you know, in the same manner as we got into that stuff because of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you just can't take it lightly as a cultural phenomena, and I if Disney's willing to spend billions of dollars to acquire it. Mm-hmm. They're not gonna. They're not gonna take it like it's not going to be just something that you can just stamp. A, they could make it into something where it's like, hey, we can just merchandise this and make crappy movies and do all that. But as you know, Disney, Disney's had its ups and downs. But when it comes to something that's bread and butter, they work in for the the long game on it. Mm-hmm. And, so, yeah, even even with the troubles with Marvel and the, you know, Marvel mishandling, it sounds like pretty much, I don't really follow Marvel comics, but it sounds like people are pretty much upset with how they do everything. Right. But um, even, even with that, they're going to have Disney looming over their heads, too. Yep. And... I have a feeling there'll be a lot of pressure and even in the lot. And I think a lot of the people who run and work Marvel are going to be like, holy cow, <laughs> Star Wars, you know? So I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm being naive too that they, that, that they will appreciate the, the gravity of, of what they have in their hands with it and the, the amount of money they could make. They could, end up with Star Wars propping up Marvel for a while and maybe bailing them out of some of their mishandling of stuff. Wouldn't that be ironic? That would be that history would be repeating ironic. itself. Because that's exactly what the original Star Wars series yeah. did for Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, I mean, they got to be thinking about that, right? Yep, you would think, you would hope. And at this point, it's not going to be the potential battle that it was before that was the big negative point of star Wars. And, and not only that, but you have all this new stuff coming out. So it's not going to be like treading water in between stuff for stories. You, you pretty much belong to the company that owns the franchise now. So you're not like, it should be easier to keep all the stories in line and what you can and can't do and stuff like that without it being a big problem. So that a lot of the negatives have been taken away in what, you know, so yeah, I'm optimistic about it because why not be optimistic until it comes out and it sucks <laughs> and then I'll gripe about it if it sucks, but I'm pretty sure it'll probably be pretty good. It seems like the state of Star Wars in comics has been pretty uniformly decent, whether it be, you know, post 
Mar- all the dark horse stuff and stuff like that. There's it's been proven. There's a lot of writers out there who know how to write some s- good Star Wars. Right. So I don't know. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I'm pretty. Yeah, and if it sucks, I can just like not pay attention, just discount it and forget about it till somebody comes by five years later. And goes finally a Star Wars comic came out that's worth reading. Read this, and then I'll read it. So, well, I don't know. I'm I I do not. I am in no way dreading any of the new Star Wars stuff coming out. Um, that could change if all of a sudden it becomes an avalanche of crap. Right. But I really don't see that happening. I I see there being some of the standalone films that I might end up being very unhappy with because the, I don't like the particular director or the direction they, or the style they have with it. But I'd sort of be excited about that. Cause that means those films might be going in different directions or more experimental directions. So just the fact that there's potential for all that stuff makes me very happy. Absolutely. <clears throat> Pardon me. Voice is given out on me. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our uh, our email segment for this time around. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, our buddy Mark Sandroni. Mark, we got your email, buddy. It is a monster-long one, but I look forward to reading it. We will do that on the next episode, promise. But thank you for writing in. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know, yes, we did get it, and uh, let you know why it wasn't read this time, just because I feel like we've gone really long for this segment. Um, let's take a real quick break, and we are going to come back with, um, while it's not the final story in uh, the Marvel Star Wars saga uh, contained in the uh, Star Wars uh, Omnibus Volume 2 Wild Space. It is sort of is kind of the wrap up to this whole thing. As Chris said, the final Carmine Infantino Star Wars called World of Fire. So we're going to come back to that uh, just shortly. Stay tuned. Fire, fire. <laughs> Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Hello and thank you for calling the Tales of the Justice Society of America 24-hour live human being customer service hotline. 
Hello, I... Unfortunately, all oh. of our representatives are sleeping. Or busy. Uh, busy. All of our representatives are busy right now. But if you stay on the line, your call will be answered in reverse Hungarian alphabetical order, starting with the letter... D. Okay. Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line. Alright. We are experiencing longer than usual wait times. Your call will be answered in... 94. Minutes. Please continue to hold. Your call is extremely important to us. Please stand uh, Check us out on the web at www.twotruefreaks.com. Your call is ridiculously important to us. Yeah, if my call's so important, then why don't you answer it? is taking so long. You may be asking yourself, what the fuck is taking so long? Um, be sure that we'll be with you shortly. Please continue to hold. Answer. Answer the goddamn. <laughs> Let me check. Is he still there? Ah! Hey guys, he's still holding. Oh, <laughs> We're sorry for your wait. Please continue to hold. God damn it. Tales of the Justice Society of America returns soon with brand new episodes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday number 60. We're going to jump into the Marvel Star Wars segment of the show here. And with the synopsis is... Hello. <laughs> World of Fire originally appeared between the episodes, or episodes issues 107 and 115 of the, the British Star Wars Weekly, which cost 12 pence, governor. We had Chris Claremont was a writer. The awesome, awesome art team of Carmine Infantino and Gene Day. Howard Bender was the tonist. And uh, then we had lettering by Irv Wantanabe and Gene Simek on some issues. Sort of split up in there. All right. Our story begins. A couple rebels are checking out their mysteriously destroyed archaeological site on the dead planet Alshan. <laughs> and they find everyone dead and all the buildings exploded from within. Soon they too are dispatched by a mysterious energy beam. Meanwhile, on the Imperial Starship construction facility uh, on the planet Foundry, Luke, Leia, the droids, and a hot Leia lookalike, Misi, are trying to steal a souped-up experimental Imperial spaceship, the Star Raker. They pull it off, and they're heading back to base when General Dodonna radios them and diverts them to Elishan! To find out what the hell's going on. They divert to Alishan and are immediately met by a Star Destroyer and TIE Fighters. They get in a little scuffle, but then that same energy beam coming from the planet totally destroys the Star Destroyer, cutting it in half, and shoots down the Star Raker, 
which crashes into a pool of molten lava, which then hardens around them. Misi is injured and has broken bones and internal injuries. And then Luke and Leia must perform emergency lightsaber surgery to save her. Then Luke takes his lightsaber, and which is becoming basically his Swiss Army lightsaber, and uh, cuts a tunnel out of uh, out of the ship using it. And uh, he and Leia merge, only to be met by Imperial Officer Major Gra or Grau and his merry men. The Imperials recognize Leia but declare a truce since they're both trapped there and they must work together to escape. They leave Misi and the droids on the ship and set out to dig up some answers. And uh, they're immediately attacked by the mysterious energy beam and Luke saves John Grau's life and Grau returns Luke's lightsaber. They see a beam shoot out and hit where the Star Raker is and they fear the worst. On the ship, the droids find out that the ship has actually just been blasted out of the lava. R2 senses an energy burst and injects Misi, so she appears dead. So when this weird lizardy monster ends up coming and stalking through the ship, it just sort of passes her lifeless body, seemingly lifeless body, by. So John, Grau, Luke, and Leia are... Uh, checking out the last dome left and they find records of a vast underground city Gras says what the hell let's go let's go down there I'm going down there they explore a vast body strewn tunnel complex behind them on the surface the, the lizard creature is attacking Gras men our heroes have found the gigantic underground city also Gras ends in Lopaki is planning to kill Luke and capture Leia to gain Imperial Brownie points. They enter the opening to the city only to have their path blocked by the giant lizard creature. They open fire, burying it in a rock pile, which also um, unfortunately blocks their exit. The creature, who is apparently indestructible, shows up again and attacks Leia and Luke. Luke saves her, but they fall off a, a walkway and are knocked unconscious. Gron and his men are being chased by the creature then. And then they hit a dead end. And just when they think they're going to die the, and the demon is going to finish him off, it just disappears into a little ball of light. And uh, Luke and Leia come to. And then they end up finding the city's command center. And uh, they've also been found lo- by Lopaki, who places Leia under arrest. But the creature appears right behind him and kills him dead. Luke and Leia fight it, but can't seem to hurt it until they start shooting control panels. The creature is a product of the city and made of energy. Leia awakens it by shooting up a bunch of panels and then gets grabbed by the, the neck. But Luke finishes it off with his lightsaber before Leia's choked to death. They make their way out, and Luke then tries to recruit John Grah and his remaining merry men but they decline by sneaking off the Star Raker in its scout ship. Luke, Leia, the droids, and Misi all head back. Meanwhile, in the burning city, there's still a little computer life left in it, and it chuckles to itself. <laughs> the end. 
Are you there? <laughs> Are you stunned by my? Uh, I was system? stunned silent by Holy that cow. <laughs> oh, good lord! Want to talk about seeing the future, man? How about Misi's outfit in this? She's basically wearing the slave Leia outfit. Oh, you know what? For a I... good chunk of this comic. I mean, it's it's the slave Leia outfit. You are absolutely right, and I feel like a dope that I didn't even put that together. You are absolutely right. Armin Infantino's perviness was way ahead of its time, or dare I say, maybe even uh, had a little influence there. Mm-hmm. Because that's a nice costume, and, and basically, Misi looks. I, I mean, she doesn't look anything like Carrie Fisher. But she looks like Princess Leia as Carmine Infantino draws her. Right. And uh, just with a different hairstyle. I, I think there's actually several sequences in this story where she looks more like Leia than Leia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, there's, it's uh, Page 206. Mm-hmm. Up in the corner there, she definitely looks more like Carrie Fisher. She looks like Carrie Fisher in Empire. Yeah. In that one. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, never to appear again. Here, I yeah, I, I looked up a lot of the characters in this to see, you know, because every once in a while it, it, it really surprises. John Grock could have come back; he was an interesting <laughs> character. You know, it, it sometimes it really surprises me to find out that some of these people have come back in like EU novels and things. And I, I looked up several of the characters and finally I just got tired of looking and, and not finding anything. But also there's not a whole lot on these characters uh, or on this storyline in general in um, Wikipedia. There, there's really precious little. There's not even uh, as far as I could find full synopses for uh, the individual chapters of the story. Uh, so a lot of the the information that uh, you know I would occasionally glean when we were covering like the the 107 issues proper, there's none of that stuff. So I really was trying to pour over this to capture you know every little thing because we are truly uh, kind of trailblazing when it comes to this particular story because there just doesn't seem to be much out there online about I'm very it. Very surprised too, actually, because this one. I mean, hasn't this one sort of gotten around a little more than... It has, because this was actually reprinted um, in paperback size. This was part of the Marvel Illustrated book series. This this is the one that was called Star Wars 2. It's right on the cover. It's Star Wars, and then the number two after Star Wars, World of Fire. And it's got a really great painted cover on it by Earl Norum. Um, now, longtime listeners to, to True True Freaks may or may not recognize that name. Um, he was the one that drew the cover to the uh, Marvel magazine uh, called Man God that had the story of um, Hugo Danner that Michael Bailey and I did ages ago, way back on Back to the Bins. That was the inspiration for us doing Tales of the Justice Society of America. Same guy, same artist. And this cover to this paperback is i mean it's just beautiful it's it's kind of it's kind of a take on the classic hildebrandt brothers original star wars poster you know the one with luke in his desert fatigues you know he's holding his lit lightsaber over his head 
you know, Leia's behind him or beside him, like in in her gown with her blaster. This is kind of similar but different because Luke he's he's got almost the same exact pose, except he's got more of that Han Solo looking outfit with the jacket that he was wearing at the very end, you know, the end of Star Wars the, at the ceremony. Leia has like a green. I don't even know how you would, how you would describe this. It's like a jumpsuit with a green jacket. You've got the droids on either side of Luke. R2 looks really good. 3PO looks like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. 3PO's making a pose like he's getting ready to start a sprint. Right, yeah. He's also making the peace sign with his right hand. <laughs> he looks much more like a like a thin mechanical man, like the Tin Man yeah. or something, than he does like traditional like 3PO. Terminator or something. Yeah, because he's, he's all like squat and his legs are all bent. Like, yeah, he does. He looks like he's about to run, which I don't think 3PO can do more than that. Like, I just shit my pants shuffle that he does when he walks. <laughs> and then Misi, she's actually really cute looking here. She looks like a like a one of those like teen actresses from the 50s or something she's wearing a jumpsuit and then she's got a lucille ball like rag tied on her head she's in her costume from when they were on foundry right when she was like the cleaning lady or whatever yeah but i i love this cover i think the cover is great and i dug this out today because i haven't looked at this in years i mean i've read this story once or twice over the years this is one of those uh hard to find books for me uh, I mean, I tracked this down relatively late in my in my Star Wars collecting. I ended up buying it. I think I got it at a convention or something. So I hadn't looked at it in years. So I dug it out and opened it up, and I was really surprised to find that the reprinting that's in here, it's the full story. It's mm-hmm. one of those split panel things where they took the panels and they and they split it up through yeah. the book. So it doesn't necessarily read like a like a traditional comic. Some panels are exploded, some of them are cut up, some of them are edited, but it's all black and white. And that's what really surprised me was I could have sworn that this reprint was in full color, that it had been colorized, but it hasn't. They actually preserved the black and white just like it was presented in Star Wars Weekly in the UK. So I thought that was interesting because you know, one of my criticisms of one of the earlier stories we covered in the Omnibus was that the Americanized version, when they printed it here in America, was colorized. But then the version that's in the omnibus is black and white. So they kept that black and white. And I thought, well, that's odd. Since it got colored at some point, why not color it? And they didn't. And I'm wondering if this is why, because then in this version, it never got colorized. So it might seem really odd. But the book, the omnibus does jump back and forth between color and, and black and white anyway. And some of the reprinting decisions that they made were were kind of strange too, as we're going to see here, uh, you know, in future episodes when we get into the stories that are in uh, what they called um, shit. What was the name of that reprint series? Devil Worlds. They uh-huh. they reprint Devil Worlds as opposed to reprinting the original stories as they were presented in Star Wars Weekly. That just seems odd to me. You're reprinting a reprint instead of reprinting the original. That is just a really bizarre decision to me. I don't understand why they did that, other than the fact that the Devil Worlds were actual Dark Horse books. I'm looking on eBay right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, $37.95, buy it now. $40, buy it now. Really? 
for 99, World of Fire? 99, 99, 99, buy it now. Holy um, cow. What's unread. the cheapest one? Cheapest one is $9. That's not bad. I'm trying to remember what I paid. I, I know it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't it wasn't crazy expensive either when I bought it. But I, I bet you I, I probably had my copy probably 20 years now because I think I was actually in the service when I finally tracked this down. But it, it took some doing. It took some finding to finally locate it. Because most, you know, this was well before, like, the internet and everything. So most people hadn't even heard of it. And whenever I asked about it, they're like, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. But now, of course, you know, the internet's out there, so you can find, you know, pictures are readily available and that sort of thing. But this was this was yeah. back in the age where you had to really hunt for things like this, you know? $9 one has a chunk of the back cover torn off. Oh. Huh. I had no idea that this thing actually had uh, had some value to it. I figured, if anything, so. having been recently reprinted in the Omnibus would drive the price down rather than up. So that actually surprises me. Well, I was just going to kind of go through in order of the story here on my notes on this. My very first note is for the cover of Star Wars Weekly 107. Wow, this is a bizarre cover. Yeah. It's, it's Carmine Infantino, and I don't know who the inker is on this. You've got... Luke again. He's in his uh, final, you know, his cer- uh, award ceremony jacket and everything, fighting a stormtrooper hand to hand. You've got a stormtrooper shooting Leia in the wrist, point blank, with what looks like a revolver as opposed to like a an actual stormtrooper mm-hmm. laser pistol. So real busy, yeah. busy, busy cover. It's not a particularly good one either. The the stormtrooper has mummy hands. <laughs> It's like they're all wrapped with bandages or something. And then there's that one stormtrooper in the background that looks more like Death's Head or something, and he looks like a stormtrooper. He's got like a grin, like like teeth or something. You see him there in the background behind Leia? Yeah, the one next to him is pretty distorted, too. He's <laughs> got like a, a shark mouth or like a weird something going on. Yeah. It's like an upside-down T for a mouth or something. Yeah, there, it's... It's not a it's not a real great cover on that one. Um see what I've got here. Okay, right off the bat. Very first page, 137 is the first page of the story as you look at it in the omnibus. It says, now it has the guys they're standing on the planet. It says silence greets them. Silence is their response. The archaeological station, a non-military rebel base on the remote blah blah blah. Wait, 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 wait. What the hell is a rem- is a non-military rebel base? I how an archaeological how how I I take it that the rebels did not have the budget to be doing right. they're working like a government now. It's like yeah. yeah, this isn't we're not doing anything military here, but we hear there's, you know, archaeological stuff to be found here. I would have enough time, uh, enough of a hard time buying this after the fall of the empire and before the establishment of a new legit government. I'd have enough of a hard time believing it then. I don't believe it at all during this time. The rebels were supposed to be a a scrappy ragtag group. Yeah. And they are establishing archaeological settlements on other worlds and stuff. And again, the just the simple phrase, non-military rebel base, that is a complete contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. The simple fact that they are rebelling against the legit government makes them a military organization, doesn't it? 
How can you be? It makes trapped? everything they do. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. And and this was not limited to this. We've pointed that out in the past, where there were a number number of instances where it seemed like the rebels were actually being taken as some sort of like like they were the. It was almost like political parties. Like you had the empire as one political party and the rebels as another political party. No. Yeah, yeah, that existed <laughs> had a whole structure and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the one where they go to the banker planet. You know, it's like, well, you know, welcome empire representatives and welcome rebel representatives. It's like, no, as soon as the rebels show up in that planet, the freaking empire would be killing them or taking them, you know, taking them prisoner or something. It just, it didn't make any sense and there was a lot of instances of this where i just wondered like do the writers understand the concept of like you're you're rebels you're a rebel faction i I just it's very bizarre to me um this first page really strongly reminds me of a page and i think it's in issue 21 it's it's like where darth vader appears again for the first time after star wars and there was that settlement that was all shot up and everything. You know the one I'm talking about? It was like that. Uh huh. It was like a flower planet or something. It, it look. It just looks very similar to me. The way that this story starts out with the bodies all over the place. It just has a very similar. And of course, it's the same artist too. But it reminded me a lot of that. I'm loving the art in this story. I think it's just I, gorgeous. I love that it's you know it's it's Infantino, which you know. Everybody has their issues with, and I do too sometimes. There are some really wonky spots in this. But I love Infantino inked by day and in black and white. I think it's great. I think it. I think more of it looks awesome than, than not. Oh, the Y-Wing in this story oh, yeah. is beautiful looking. If you ever get a chance, I, I don't know if you still have your copy, but if you get a chance to thumb through the uh, Star Wars sketchbook, I'm pretty sure that this is a swipe right from the Star Wars sketchbook, but it still doesn't destroy my enjoyment of it. I think it's a great picture of a Y-Wing. I like the uh, – when we first see Foundry, that's pretty much just the Death Star trench with some embellishment. And again, I think that might be out of the Star Wars sketchbook too. Typically, I really like Infantino TIE Fighters, but his TIE Fighters are a little wonky in this. Again, they remind me of those cheap knockoff to- uh, toys that you used to be able to buy out of the bubblegum machine. Because it's like the cockpit is too fat and the wings are too small, so it looks more like a bug or something than it does a TIE Fighter. They're really odd looking. Now, I like, did you notice that in the beginning of the story, Luke and Leia are both white, uh, wearing that same styling jacket from the yeah. awards ceremony? They they both have, like... They're matching. Yeah, they do. They have matching outfits, which is neat, you know, because this was well before, you know, we had any idea that they were, like, brother and sister. But they do. They actually look like twins because they're in the same outfit. They both have, like like, skin-tight black body suits, and then they're wearing the... Uh, the award ceremony jacket they look really cool they they the padding on those jackets almost looks like the a vietnam era stuff that would have you where you would stick the bullets in right yeah like a like a like bandolier. a bandolier sort of yeah. that was just attached to your outfit yeah i think it was in the movie i think it's just like puffy ridges or something but yeah it actually does look more like like it could serve like a bandolier or something that would be neat if it actually it did turn out to have like extra ammo packs or something like that in there. 
it's getting into kind of, kind of like Rob Liefeld territory, but it's right. kind of cool. <laughs> now, let's see what page was it? Page 140. Did you notice that uh, R2 is getting around with a hover round? He's got his own little like floating platform as he's oh. going around. He's he's much shorter. He's much fatter. Yeah. It's like R two put on weight, and now he he needs to be he needs to be on one of those mobility anti grab to get around. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was funny. Well, I like on one forty one when Missy's beating the stormtroopers with her with her rifle. It looks like she hit the one robot or one. Um, Stormtrooper and his head came off like a, a rock'em sock'em robot. <laughs> it does too. Well, the one is making it almost look like he's making an O face with his mask, like he's going oof, like the wind <laughs> yeah. popped out of him or something. It's very funny. Infantino still has that weird grip that he has everybody have when they're holding their blaster. Like yeah, like the blaster's a little too small for their hand or something. Now, what did you think of the Star Raker in this? Because I thought this was a pretty crap starship myself. It's just yeah, it's it's belongs. It's it looks like a Marvel. It looks like something out of the X Men or something. Yeah, or maybe even out of a Kirby design. But yeah, it's not a very exciting Star Wars-y looking spaceship. Not at all. To me, it looked like a like a proto blockade runner, like a like a mm-hmm. really pared down uh, arc, uh, blockade runner. But what's weird about it is it's described in here as like it's super fast and sleek and maneuverable and super powerful. And you look at and it, it's all it's blocky like, looking. Yeah, it's like there's no sleekness to it at all. It's it's ugly. It's blocky. It looks awkward. It looks kind of flimsy. Yet it looks like a, tel- a telescope on a tripod when it's <laughs> <dark>. <laughs> it, it really does. pointed the wrong way. <laughs> it totally does. I like that picture. It's on page 143, the next to last panel with Misi. She's turning, she's yelling to Luke, you know, to, that she got Leia aboard and everything's all right. I don't know who that panel reminds me of artistically, but it, it looks like another artist that I just can't quite place, like maybe like Gil Kane or... A little frazetta maybe? Yeah, it's really nice, though. I like that. because That's a panel right there that I think Misi clearly looks more, much more like Leia than Leia <laughs> yes. actually does. That's a really good panel. And then the very next panel's crap. You got the Star Raker taking off. It looks like the Star Raker's blasting off, and it looks too flimsy to actually have made it through that opening. And then that next explosion beneath it looks like Starro's flying off in the, like Starro or Prody from the Legion or something. That that little weird starfish-looking shape there. I wonder if it was their tribute to James Bond. <laughs> it could be Star Raker, Moonraker. When did Moonraker come out? It was like uh, seventy-eight or seventy-nine. After, yeah, right? not long after Star Wars. It, it was could sort be. Of- Something was tickling the back of my brain that Star Raker may have been one of those like pre like like when he was still in the the early stages of creating uh-huh. stuff like one of those names like maybe the proto name of the Millennium Falcon or something but I I couldn't find anything to confirm that I tried to look it up but it was just kind of tickling my brain like I had heard that before you know like how Luke had gone through iter- different iterations, like he had been the Star Killer, Star Killer, and stuff like that. It seems to me I've heard Star Raker tossed around before too, but I just couldn't, 
I couldn't put my finger on it. Do you like the cover to 108? Where Luke's at the... It's a lot better than 107. Yeah. I actually kind of like that. It looks a little unfinished. Like it needs a little more detail to it. His hands are a little weird, yeah. Yeah. But I I love how the TIE fighters look out the actual window. Mm -hmm. But what's weird here is that this never happens in the story because Luke is flying and it's Leia that takes to the guns. So that's kind of weird. But I do like that shot, though. Then 3PO's just kind of grinning at him like, Good (laughs) job. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Can I just watch you do this? <laughs> I like watching humans do their work. It's good to see General Dodonna again. Always like General Dodonna. Always kind of wondered what happened to him. We had our remember we had our little theory that what was it? He got bumped off or something. Leia got yeah. tired of him and had him killed or something like that. Well, we got a little more Luke and Leia cuddling up in this one too. Oh, oh yeah, bashing around. I'm telling you, there's a horribly deformed, like, illegitimate Skywalker child running around out there somewhere in the universe. It's episode seven, man, I'm telling you. (laughs) Um, Where was it here? There was a mention, uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, here it is. Top top panel, page 146, Luke engages the warp drive. Yeah, yeah, they don't have warp drive in Star Wars. Just want to point that out. Han Solo, the Millennium Falcon, and Chewbacca the Wookiee are mentioned several times in this story with absolutely no explanation of where they are. It's just they are mentioned. I was trying to think of where in the hell this story would have taken place in the actual continuity, and I finally just gave up because I, I could not mentally do it, the yeah. gymnastics to, to place it in continuity. But uh, what else? I had tons of notes on this one. There's a mention here somewhere. Oh, here it is. It's the second panel on page 146. Later, en route to the Rebel Alliance headquarters on the third moon of Yavin. I'm like, uh, you're going to be sadly disappointed when you get to the third moon of Yavin, dude, because the base is actually on the fourth moon of Yavin. But I just actually happened to catch that in this. Poor Chris Claremont. He just didn't have the internet to rely on for his... Oh, the bar is on the third moon. (laughs) (laughs) The brothel. The, the, Uh, The officer's club. Damn, do I love that shot of the Imperial Cruiser. That is just beautiful. Where it comes out from behind, what is it? It comes out from behind like a moon or something and just starts laying into uh, the Star Raker. I just love yeah. that. And then just gets cut right in half. That's yeah. insane, too. Now, I was thinking that would be a great effect to see in a movie, to see a ship the size of... Well, the, it does say here that it's much smaller than a Star Destroyer, but it's still... It's essentially a Star Destroyer. I thought, how cool would that effect look on the big screen to see, like, a planet shoot a Star Destroyer and blow it up? Because, I mean, we do have that ion cannon shot in Empire, but that just, like, knocks it out. I mean, like, legitimately, like, blowing it up. Because the only thing I could think that was kind of similar was when the second Death Star destroys one of the Mon Calamari ships... But I never thought that scene was particularly like dynamic or exciting. It just like shoots it and there's a big ball of fire. I'm I'm thinking one that actually looked more like this, where it actually mm-hmm. like busts it in two and it combusts from within and all you know, more of a slow effect as opposed to what what we see in Jedi where it just boom and it's gone, you know? Yeah. I thought this was really cool. But there there was one thing I I didn't understand, and I think I've heard this in science fiction movies before. So they're in space, right? And they're zipping all over the place. And granted, there's like a moon, there's a planet, there's all this stuff. But the the 
the Imperial Cruiser comes out, and it says here, uh, it's not as big as a Star Destroyer, but uh, not as powerful, but it still dwarfs the Star Raker. Far worse, it lies between the Rebels and open space. I'm thinking it's one ship. How the hell does exactly. one ship cut you off in outer space? You can pretty in much, all directions. You yeah. can go backwards, up, and around it if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all they have to do is turn to let's see mm-hmm. to their left, and that's completely wide open space. Yeah, how are they cut off? I didn't get that at all. That just you know, that happens a lot too. Yeah, it does. It really does. Now, did you notice, let me see, what's the cover of, you know, I didn't think too much of the cover of 109, although I thought it was interesting that they put Obi-Wan on the cover of uh, 109. On page, well, in the next section, after they crash, did you notice that Leia's hair is all screwed up? The, yeah, the buns came out. They had a lot, they had a hard crash, man. It took out Misi. Yeah. Lisa's going to do is knock her, her uh, buns out. Oh, <laughs> I thought this is that's sort of that's sort of like I think what Leia would look like bedhead, you know? Right? Yeah, when she first gets up in the morning, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. or after, yeah. <laughs> now, up till now, I thought the story had been pretty pedestrian. It was interesting; the art was good, but it was fairly pedestrian. But I thought the cliffhanger to this particular chapter on page one fifty-eight, where they've crashed on the planet. Ships out of power. Luke knows the situation is bad, but he doesn't realize just how bad it is until he opens that. Basically, it's a it's like a window, like a like a plexiglass or whatever. Opens the window and realizes they are buried under solidified lava. They're buried alive. I love that last panel. He just says, "I don't believe it. That's rock, solid rock." And then he remembers that they're, you know, they they crashed into a lava field. He has no idea how bad it really is that they are they're underneath like tons of solidified lava. I just thought, okay, this is really exciting. Now I I read this as an adult, so I don't quite have that that sentimental attachment to it. But if I'd read this as a kid, this would probably stand as like one of my favorite issues because that's a pretty interesting. Yeah, like they're screwed. I, yeah, oh, yeah, they are totally hosed. How are they going to get out? Star of Trek where they can beam out. Right. I love that cover to uh, one ten, where it's uh, Luke like carving a path with his lightsaber underground. Now this is very similar to another Star Wars. He's wearing his shorts on his head. (laughs) Yeah, he does. He he looks a little like, uh, like Kang the Conqueror or something from, uh, from the uh, Avengers. I like Leia's. I like how all those stormtroopers are just standing there as a, as a lightsaber is poking up out of the ground and going. Well, I was looking at those stormtroopers, and my first thought was, man, those are some messed up stormtroopers. But then I got to thinking, maybe these are supposed to actually be like, I don't know, like lava troopers or something? You know what I mean? Like with heat shielding on or something? Yeah, you know, like maybe they're supposed to look different. I I couldn't quite place what it was that I thought they were supposed to be. Let's see what else we got here. 
I love the action pinup. I didn't expect them to reprint these type of things, but they did. They reprinted the action pinup. I thought that was weird, yeah, because it's from a story that's totally not in here. Yeah. It's actually from the uh, Sister Domina story. This was a cover. I forget what issue it is. It's like issue like 37 or something like that of the you know the American version, but I really like that image. It's Luke versus that. It's basically like a unicorn kitty cat or something. It's really yeah, unicorn like lioness or something now oh you know what i missed one of my notes here there was a note on uh for page 158 of the story leia actually consults with r2 what is it she says here uh let's see where the hell is it oh here it is when they find Misi injured she says, R2, activate your medical memory sub-bank. And I'm thinking, what? Uh, he's an astromech droid. Why, why the hell would he have medical knowledge in his memory banks? But, I mean, I guess. Better stay away from Missy's astromech. <laughs> I just noticed in that next panel, he's using, like, a stethoscope on her head, too. Which, how does that work? Is he, like, reading her, like, brain waves or? I don't know. I don't know. I noticed Luke decided to take his shirt off for surgery, though. <laughs> yeah, he did. I think they took hers off too. She looks well. Delicious. I think it's really hot. They're supposed to be in a. Sh- it's supposed oh, to be yeah. really hot in the ship because there's. I mean, the lava's not molten anymore, but I'm sure it's still right. Super heating the ship. Oh yeah, he says that when he goes outside and starts working his way through the lava, he keeps remarking that you know he thinks he might pass out and stuff because it's so warm. Now, I love this idea of him using his lightsaber, the the cauterizing effect to close wounds and basically act like like a medical... I think that's a really cool idea. But there was a couple of things I thought of. For one, I like that... I'm guessing that Claremont was kind of predicting the future because based simply off of the first Star Wars film, was there anything that we ever saw to give us the impression that a lightsaber would have a cauterizing effect? Um, the the lack of concern when the one creature got his arm cut off in the um, cantina. But there's a perhaps. pool of blood, remember? There is a pool of blood. a lot of people had an issue but that with pool that of blood- retroactively. No, but you see, but that pool of blood would would logically come from the end. That well, no, that end should be cauterized too. You're right. right. Yeah, because I know retroactively after Empire, a lot of people had issues with that scene to mm-hmm. a point where, if you watch Star Wars Revisited, that was actually something that was digitally retouched. Was that the limb no longer had a pool of blood because of the cauterizing effect? So I'm trying to think: is there anything else in the very first movie? That shows that it would have that. And I can't think of anything because the only other time anybody gets attacked is when Vader cuts down Kenobi and he just disappears. So you never see that mm-hmm. happen either. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm going to chalk it up to uh, to Claremont for this one. Then, if I'm remembering Splinter of the Mind's Eye right, didn't Luke have the ability, at least in that book, to like change the diameter of his lightsaber blade. Like he could make it like pencil thin, or, or he can or, make it longer and shorter too. I yeah. Think. So I'm surprised he didn't like try to adjust it or something. 
But really my biggest note with the lightsaber thing, as cool as I think it is, and I like this idea of him using it that way, when we see Misi later in the story, there's like no evidence of scars or anything. So what exactly was it that he was cauterizing and, and how do they like seal her up? I'm, and I'm thinking that they're trying, they, they just didn't want to show it, but I'm taking, I, I assume that Princess Leia cut her open. Right. And the first time when she cut her open... Luke had to seal whatever was bleeding internally, and then he had to seal the wound to close it off, you know, into the into the stomach cavity or whatever. But broken limbs, those take a lot longer. <laughs> those take a long time to heal. Right. Unless they have some sort of bone knitter or something like they do in Star Trek, I guess. I guess it's possible, but you would think that... You know, just based on what little we ever see in the in the saga, you know, with like Luke being put in the back die, I always thought there was more to their actual healing, yeah, than just you know waving a device and okay, you're healed type of thing, right? Like Star uh, Trek, they could, yeah, they could put her in a back to tank or something, but still, in this case, they're just stuck to sticks and stones, and right? I love the fact that lightsaber is spelled correctly for a change in this story because I still prefer the you know the S A B R E as opposed to E R. To me, that's just the proper spelling because that's what was first before they they changed it up. Um, gosh, what else do I have? I didn't realize I had this many notes on this thing. It's I like a the long story. It is, yeah, it's several chapters. It's much longer than I thought it was. I liked when Luke is captured by the Imperials and they ask him his name. He gives his first name as Lars. I thought that was cool because that was the name of his, uh, the last name of his aunt and uncle. Uh huh. Um, Lars uh, Doonstrider. I don't know if Doonstrider has any significance or not, but I just like that he went by Lars. I thought that was cool. It's just the opposite of Skywalker. It's ground based. That's true, yeah. That is very true. Hadn't thought of that. Now, I love. This next cover, 111, only because it kind of looked familiar to me. I think this was one of those covers that was reprinted in, you know, some issue of the, you know, the the issue, you know, the American issues. Something that we were shown, like, hey, by the way, did you know that we, you know, also published Star Wars, you know, in the UK? Because I know I've seen this before. I think this was like possibly like when I saw for the first time that there were actually more Marvel Star Wars stories out there. And I saw this cover and was intrigued because I couldn't place... Because the article I read said something to the effect of, well, you know, we publish Star Wars overseas, but, you know, it's just reprints of what we're doing here. Kind of making it feel like, well, you know, you're not missing anything. Right. But clearly, based on this cover... We must have been missing something because I couldn't place this story. Like, where did this happen in our version? And it turns out it didn't because this was, you know, a, a story that was unique to Star Wars Weekly. But I can remember something seeing about this, the inking of that says Walt Simonson to me. It does. It looks very Walt Simonson. The rocks. The Luke's boot. Yeah. The detailing at the bottom of Luke's boot reminds me of Thor era Walt Simonson. Yeah. It could be, because as I've looked up a lot of this stuff, the ones that actually do seem to have a credit somewhere, I'm, I'm frequently surprised by some of the artists that have worked on it, because there was a number of these Infantino covers that uh, 
Uh, Bob McLeod did the inking on, and some of the you know some other uh, artists that I wouldn't readily associate with this era of uh, of Marvel Star Wars. I like this. The stormtrooper just looks sad somehow. Like he's oh not again. <laughs> I broke my tailbone. <laughs> Let's see what else. What else do I have here? There was a mention. Page 171, where the hell is it? Oh, it's the first panel. Luke goes to check on Misi. He says, how do you feel, Misi? She says, I'm in no pain. She says, thanks to the medicine that Imperial Sergeant gave me, I'm in Wonderland. I'm thinking, there's a Wonderland in Star Wars? (laughs) Okay. And look at Luke's eyes right there. I know. Luke's got a little fish head going on yeah, there. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, he's he's not looking right. I think he got maybe more damaged in the crash than than he's letting on or something. He's he's smart though. He gets a nice little hug from Princess Leia dressed Misi when she's in Wonderland. Yep. And then three PO almost sheds a little oily tear wondering <laughs> about human emotions. Yep. See, if Luke had had more time and didn't have to worry about keeping everybody alive and digging tunnels and playing nice with the Imperials, he might have been able to work himself into a little filet fish sandwich there is what I'm thinking. But you know, lightsaber. There you go. <laughs> Jumping way ahead, because I... By the way, I do not like the cover to one twelve. This is—it's really—it actually looks like uh, Valance the Cyborg's coming to pay a visit, is what it kind of looks like. But I was disappointed <laughs> by the creature that that shows up. Missy looks uh, fairly black in that. Uh... She did, and see, that was another reason why I went to look at the paperback, thinking the paperback was in color, because I fully expected to find that Missy was actually. Um, black and she's not but she is drawn in such a way you know in the black and white uh, printing of this that she could actually be either color so she I could c- I mean in the black version she still looks like Princess Leia but with like she has more of an afro look yeah. in her, for, to her hair in yeah this cover. definitely yeah like a 70's fro yeah she really does my uh, my next specific note really wasn't until quite a ways ahead, so stop me if you have anything else. Um, I had the note that uh, on page 180, again, a real, real rarity for Star Wars of this era that you've got on the uh, fourth panel, Stormtroopers without their helmets on. I thought that was actually really cool. Because I remember that being such a treat during this time, whenever you would see that, because you just so you just didn't, you didn't see it in see movies, it. really. Yeah, never happened. Luke and, when someone had a stolen suit. Right. Gosh, you know, that's that's pretty much, there, there's still quite a bit of story after this, but that's really about my last note. I dig it. I think it's an interesting story, but once they get into the underground city, the, the thing kind of, honestly, it kind of falls apart. It peters me. out, yeah. really. I thought the monster was really... Well, they build up Lopaki. You wouldn't know it from my synopsis, but they keep having him like, I'm going to get them. And they build up to it, and then he's just like, all right, you two, you're under arrest. And they're like, behind you. And he's like, I'm not going to fall for that trick. And then he's done. (laughs) They never even make it clear what happens to him because it doesn't look like the creature kills him. It just whacks him, but then he's dead. Oh, does it say that he's dead? I missed Luke that says, part. Luke says, Lopaki's dead. Now oh, it's our okay. turn. See, I thought they just left him behind. 
I don't think I, he checks his pulse or anything. I do like the cover to 114. It's not the best art, but I think this is the next swing of Luke and Leia. At, or wait, no, you know what? I take that back because Luke and Leia swang again in uh, in the Waterworld story. At the very conclusion, he grabs swing, her and yeah. swing. Yeah. yeah. Well, one 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 fifteen cover. This creature's kind of got a vagina. I don't know how else to put it. Uh-oh. Let me see. I'm, I'm working my way there as fast as I can. That's... Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We had it's pointed kinda, this out. This kind of does. Yes. Yeah, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. It's a girl. But, yeah, that's not <laughs> right. And it, it almost looks like Luke's going, oh, no. Break. Oh, yeah. no, 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 no. Leia looks a lot like Rogue from the X-Men right there, the way her, yeah. her outfit's colored and everything. But, yeah, I didn't... I, I just... I, w- I was kind of just disappointed by the ending of the story. I just kind of... I liked the character just, of John Graw. I thought... I, I liked that he... You almost thought maybe he could become their ally. And they left... The, I, I, Claremont, definitely, he wrote a story, but he left a lot of things... For future use, if the, if anybody wanted them, which obviously they didn't, you could right. have had Ra show up again. Misi, not particularly a strong character, but she could have been built into one, I guess. She had girlfriend potential for Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was well, also she had potential to to kind of. It's something that did happen later when uh, later on with um, Shira was brought into the yeah. story, you know, because then. Leia was always kind of she was interested in Luke, but she was standoffish, and you know because of the thing with Han and everything else. And then all of a sudden, Shira comes in, starts paying Luke attention. Then Leia gets jealous, like, "Oh, you know, I, I maybe I missed my opportunity." Yeah. Could have done all of that here with Misi, and they kind of touch on it, but never really pull the trigger on it. I don't know the thing with Graw and his men, though. See. I, I you know I like the character. I thought he was interesting, but it's like okay, either fully commit or fully don't. I, I would have much rather have had this story end where at the end of it, it's like okay, we work together to solve our problem, but now we're enemies again, you know. And they had to battle or something like you know. But having it where at the end of the thing they're all chummy chummy and hey, why don't you come join the rebellion? Nah, that's okay. We're gonna we actually like being Imperials. We're gonna go back to the. You know, he literally says that when he leaves. He says, um, "Whatever you may think," uh, he says, "Whatever you may think, Princess, the Empire really is our kind of people. We'll stay with them." Well, he's you know, thinking, he's, he's a kind what? of guy. He's a kind of he's an honorable guy, and he's probably a lifetime military. Right. So he's in the Empire. And he probably doesn't concern himself with the politics involved in it, you know, and whether the rebels are right, who's, you know, good and who's bad. And, uh, but he has, he has a, he formed a respect for Luke and Leia because Luke didn't have to, Luke, if Luke hadn't saved his life, they just would have gotten rid of that problem. They could have just stood there and Gra and his men could have been destroyed and Luke and Leia wouldn't have had to worry about him, but he chose to save him. And from that point on, Gra was like, yeah, you know, okay, but whatever, here's your lightsaber back. 
But if he's just going to go back to the Empire, but he's not going to capture them or kill them or anything like or report them back or anything like that, then that makes him a traitor, doesn't it? In a way, it, it, yeah. Well, it makes him a traitor to the Empire, but probably not to his value system. You know, he's probably in, there's probably a lot of old school Empire guys who you know are are back from the days you know during the Clone Wars and stuff where the Empire right. were the good guys, right? And they've just they've just stayed there and they haven't concerned themselves, like I said, with the Senate or anything like that, or right. They they have their job and that's what they do, you know. <laughs> I liked it. I liked that he was he was shaded into something a little more. It was very Chris Claremont like, right. And I think last time Chris Claremont did a Star Wars story, it just didn't work as well as this one did, if I seem to recall correctly. I'm trying because he only ever did just a couple of them, and I'm thinking the the only other one I can think of, the last one that we would have covered, I think was actually well, he did annual number one, which we did not long ago. But of course, we did the annuals out of order. We did them right, after we right. did everything else. So he did annual one. The only other thing I can think of would be um, that two-parter John Carter story. Didn't he do that one? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then before that is the one, um, the Luke flashback story with him and Biggs on Tatooine, which I actually like. It's not a that great really story, good. but I, I like that one. But the annual number one wasn't that good either, no, no, if I recall not. right. No, it didn't. It doesn't feel particularly Star Wars. To right, me. right. The problem with that one, it was just like another science fiction story, which is a lot of what this one feels like to me. It doesn't feel particularly Star Warsy. It just feels. It like feels Star Warsy of the Infantino age, though. It feels yeah. like it fits in that period. Yeah, I'll give you that. That that's true. I will agree with that. Well, what else you got on this one? Anything? That's about all I got. Next sad time to see around, it go. Yeah, I am too. I really am sad to see it go because next time around, the story that we're covering in this is from Star Wars. Um, it's actually, I think it's Empire Strikes Back Weekly. I'm trying to get to it here as fast as I can. Flipping, flipping. I, rem- I haven't read it in a long time, and I remember reading it like years ago. I got it as a torrent and being like, oh, it's a weird all. Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Weekly, number 149. This is a story called Death Mask. This holds the distinction of being the only Marvel Star Wars story I, to this day, have never read. Oh, really? Yeah. I I actually have this issue. Our good friend Andy Leyland of Hey Kids Comics sent me a copy of this from England quite some time ago, probably a, a good year or better ago. And I've held it in reserve all this time for just this moment. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't have high expectations of it, but I'm still looking forward to it just because it is the one story I've never read. So A lot shorter than this oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a short story. Well, from here, we kind of have to decide how do we want to do the rest of this because that is a short story. But then the next I, two stories in the book are the two issues of Devil World. So do we want to... How do we now, want to what do was, that? What was Devil... I, I would like to, like... If we're pretty... I would like to stick to the stuff that was in Weekly. Right. Or somehow Marvel printed. Right. 
And so w- once we get beyond that, I wouldn't mind striking out in a new direction. Right. Well, we're we're going to finish up the Marvel Star Wars. Devil Worlds is Marvel Star Wars. It's just okay. it was reprinted under that banner of Devil Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the two we have that one issue, you know, the next issue, the uh Empire Strikes Back 149. Then we have two issues of Devil Worlds, which the way that Devil Worlds is put together it's basically like a, um, oh, what do you call it? Um, you know, it's a bunch anthology. of sh- anthology. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like an anthology book because it's several different, uh, so far as I'm aware, unconnected stories, you know, in one book. So it may take a long time to read it. It may take minutes to read yeah. it. Not really sure because they're all just short little stories, but they're yeah, well, all like, like the super first, friggin' bizarre because it's, the first one is fairly seems to be fairly long right because you've got the story with there's one that's like three pages long in here though right it's like because you've got the story with vader versus the cthulhu Cthulhu. creature then you've got it looks like luke back on a tattooing looking planet so i i I literally don't know how we want to cover this i mean do we want to just go ahead and tackle you know, each Devil World issue as one episode, or split them up, or because I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think part it of me depends on I'm how long to just, ready to just get them the hell over with, and then another part says, "Well, what's the hurry?" So I honestly, yeah. I don't know. I say we go on a case by case basis and see which stories. You know, if there's a couple that we could maybe put together in one episode, right? Because they're short. I have no problem doing that. But if, you know, doing them story by story is fine with me. Okay. As I said, we're in no hurry because yeah, we're not. Really, we have till 2015 <laughs> before our Marvel comics come yeah. out. I, I'm, I'm in no hurry whatsoever. But uh, it'll be interesting to, to take a serious examination of them because I've only read the, these particular stories, I believe I've only ever read all of them one time. And. Uh, I have mixed and different uh, opinions on each particular one of them. As far as their relevance, I, that's what I'm kind of curious to see is, is any of this even relevant? Because off the top of my head, there's there's really only one piece of relevance. It was actually footnoted in, you know, the, uh, the regular Marvel Star Wars, you know, the U.S. series. There's a footnote that was given way back during the Infantino stuff for something they said that they would explain one day and never did that was actually caused by a story in one of these Devil World stories. So when we get to that, that'll be interesting to point that out. But other than that, I can't remember if they had... I don't think they ever had any relevance because they were just so freaking... They were just off the beaten trail, that's for sure. Yeah, very strange. But I'm looking forward to it nonetheless. I think it'll be a lot of fun. That said, if you got nothing else, let's take another quick little break and come back with uh, the further adventures of Indiana Jones. The Canadian Military History Podcast is dedicated to preserving the stories of Canada's military veterans, past and 39 uh, when the war started, present. So I'm extremely proud to have the opportunity to serve as the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer. And eventually future. I hope the biggest challenge is still ahead of me. In their own words. 
Unlike other history projects, which tend to focus on dates, places, battles, and numbers, this podcast asks four key questions that reveal who this person is and what made them into the soldier, sailor, or air crew that they are today. When you do finally come back to the unit, it was like you never left. Join me, Mike Lacroix, each week as I speak to military veterans of all eras, from private to general and everyone in between. I think it's been great. I think these are the narratives that need to be told. About why they joined the Canadian Armed Forces. First off, my dad was in the military. As a kid growing up, I watched what he did, the lifestyle he had, and I thought, this is okay, this is something that I think I could do. What their greatest memory or achievement was. My greatest achievement, I think, was leading my sniper team in battle. Who was their greatest influence or the most memorable character they've encountered? Very experienced, very professional, very smart, all-around great guy, and always seemed to have just the right kind of advice for you. And what was the greatest challenge they've had to overcome? The next morning I was sleeping, and this staff sergeant, his name was Miko, he come by and he says, uh, wake up, kid, he says, uh, your brother was killed last night, we're going to bury him. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca for the RSS feed link or to stream. I remember at one point, uh, one RCR warrant officer showing us how to shave in a mud puddle. And it was just, your sleeping bag got wet? I guess that's too bad, eh? Comments and updates are also posted on the Canadian Military History Podcast Facebook page. It was just the most physically and mentally challenging course of my life. I can be contacted at Mike Lacroix cmhp at gmail.com for any comments, suggestions, or feedback. The Canadian Military History Podcast is about the people behind the uniform and not the politics behind conflict. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday. Don't get crabby. We've only been gone for a little while. <laughs> and now with the synopsis of Marvel Comics, The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, number 16, Mr. Scott Gardner. This is the April 1984 cover-dated issue on sale January 3rd, 1984, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. 30 years old already, if you can believe that. Makes me feel ancient. Uh, cover on this is by Herb Trimpey. Depicts Indiana Jones swinging over top of uh, the pirate ship and over top of the uh, pirate submarine and everything while guys are taking pot shots at him and stuff. It's not the best cover, but it's not the worst it's cover. Not bad, not it, bad it, cover. It, it's interesting. It's different. Indy looks a little wonky, but uh, yeah, it's not too bad, I guess. Uh, let's see here. Original cover price, 60 cents. The Sea Butchers, Chapter 2, Death on Dark Waters, is the official title. But to us, it will always be known very affectionately as Indy's Got Crabs. <laughs> <laughs> 
So David Michelini is plot and script, Herb Trimpey pencils, Vince Coletta inks, Joe Rosin letters, Robbie C. colors, Elliot Brown editor, and Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. Somewhere in the Aleutian Islands, our hero Indiana Jones is up to his neck in trouble once again. He has been buried on the beach, sentenced to die by the leader of a gang of vicious pirates, a beautiful and mysterious dark-haired woman uh, known as Emeralda. As if the threat of the incoming high tide wasn't enough for Jones, he is now face-to-face with a new menace, killer crabs. Their deadly pincers threaten to tear the flesh from our intrepid archaeologist, and he is powerless to stop them. Thankfully, Emeralda counted the other hero of this story out just a little too soon. Captain Katanga, Indy's sidekick and partner as of last issue, comes to his rescue, smashing the crabs and freeing Jones from the sand. Together, the duo sneak around and witness Emeralda's men loading the final bit of booty from the ancient temple that started this whole story in the first place onto a nearby submarine. Katanga overhears one of the uh, bad guys say something about his men not being long for this world, and then he and Indy race to the temple where they find the crew of the Bantu Wind tied up and a death trap of dynamite set on a timer is going to take them all out. So Jones and Katanga are unable to stop the countdown. Indy is intent on rescuing as many of the irreplaceable artifacts as possible, but Katanga is only concerned with his men. He manages finally to convince Jones to abandon the treasure and help him free his people. They uh, get everyone out of the temple just in time to witness the explosion that consumes the entire structure, and now Jones is really pissed off. At sea, the captain and crew of the Japanese sub from last issue witness the explosion and decide to alter course to investigate. Meanwhile, Indian companies sneak aboard the pirate sub, uh, which they quickly commandeer, and use it to confront Emeralda, who has taken over the Bantu Wind. Jones threatens to sink the ship unless she throws down her weapons and surrenders. But instead, she orders one of her men to signal the approaching Japanese sub and report that they are under attack from the pirate sub that Indy is controlling. The Japanese sub fires on Indy's, and India is forced to dive, dive, dive. In the confusion, the remaining pirate crew, still loyal to Emeralda that's aboard the sub, try to retake it, but Jones points out that, hey, she just tried to kill all of us. So uh, the men agree to actually assist Jones. Together, they fire debris and the body of a crewman that was killed in the attack out of the torpedo tubes to hopefully make the Japanese think that they were successful in destroying their sub. But Hiroto, the captain, is far too clever for such an obvious ploy and orders his uh, sonar men to keep a sharp ear out for underwater aberrations. Eventually, they do move off, uh, thus giving Jones the opportunity to take the Bantu win unawares and allowing Katanga's men to retake their ship. In the confusion, Emeralda escapes back to her submarine which is promptly blowed up real good by the Japanese who still think that it is menacing the Bantu wind. Days later, at his home in Connecticut, Indy is informed by Marcus Brody that Marion has taken a leave of absence to go to Greece. She said she was going there to find her father. Next issue, Abner Ravenwood, Dead or Alive. And that's this spectacular issue. 
What did you think of this one? I'll try to say something nice about this. I'll try. I got a couple things. Ah. Uh, remember last, I was sort of like arguing against you saying I sort of liked the art last issue. Well, uh-huh. I don't, I think it definitely went downhill. Yes. This one. But the, the crumminess of it <laughs> reminds me of the crumminess of like old 40s and 50s comics. Um, um, what, what page am I looking at here? It's the next no, to the last page. Yeah. Where it's, um, you know, um, Indy and Katanga looking off over the deck and, yeah. and then it's got, um, you know, the, the Japanese commander looking like Steve Canyon, actually <laughs> looking through his spyglass. It's just sort of that crappy pumped out art of the. Something happened in this last two. Yeah, because the art is not good through the entire issue. But then you get to the last two pages of the story, and it's even crappier. So something happened in those last two. Like they, it's almost like they got squeezed into the story or or something. Maybe they had. Well, it might have do the end of the story. It might have something to do with. We're, weren't we sort of teased into the Abner Ravenwood story right. being next? And then we had this storyline in another one. Right. So it might have been, these might have been put in there to slightly change the story to fit in those last three panels, the yeah. epilogue at the end, so they could tie into the, for whatever reason, the story that was supposed to be five issues ago or whatever. I'm wondering if maybe somebody at Lucasfilm didn't like the ending or something, and they and they were forced to change maybe. it because the art is clearly, I mean, to me, it doesn't hacked even look out. like the same art team. It, it actually looks like a different art team, but it is hacked. It's like job, Milton Caniff's, you know, mentally deficient brother. <laughs> it really is not good. It almost looks, man. I know I'm going to take flack for saying this, but it almost looks like Steve Ditko to me. But it's really not. Mm, there's yes, stuff. there's some Steve Ditko ness to it. Yes, yeah. Which is funny because Ditko does come onto the title later. So oh yeah, but yeah, not it's not good. What's funny <laughs> though is that my very first note is actually uh, praising a bit of the art. That very first page, I think Indy's hat looks fantastic on that panel. It's weird because I don't like how he's drawn. I don't like how right. the crabs are drawn. I really don't like anything else. But his hat looks great. His you know, like, hey, great yeah. hat. Um, my next note for this, honestly, because I, I'm just gonna lay my cards right on the. T- I thought this story was shit. I really didn't like it. It's yeah, so it was boring. Just a sort of tie up, yeah. tie up all the loose ends. It had nothing really swashbucklery about it. But there was a moment here that I just was like, it, it both horrified me and amused me simultaneously. Again, no friggin' page numbers. But it's where Indy and Katanga come into the temple and they find the dynamite death trap. Mm-hmm. They, they try to stop the timer. They figure out they can't. Indy wants to cut the wires. Katanga's like, no, don't do that. Indy tries to get away with the treasure. Katanga says, no, don't do that. Okay, so on that, on that page, fourth panel... Am I hallucinating, or is Indiana Jones really dumbass enough that he's actually whipping the dynamite? With his 20-foot whip again. Are you mental? 
I mean, what what the hell purpose does that? So he's saying here, he goes, I I know, but there's got to be some way. If I can knock those charges loose, I'm thinking you could kill everybody. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> that is the stupidest thing ever, that he's actually whipping a, a bundle of dynamite with a bullwhip. That... That made no sense to me. That was really crazy. If I was Katanga's men, I'd be like, stop talking to Indiana Jones and untie us, asshole. Right. <laughs> Tanga's like standing there talking to him, and it's just like, no, untie your men. They're all sitting there like sweating their asses off because they're about to get blown up. The uh, only part of this I found particularly r- Indiana Jones-ish was... was Amazingly, the Russian roulette scene where Emeralda tells a guy if he wants out from being, you know, stealing stuff that he can uh, play Russian roulette and gives him a fully loaded gun. Yeah. And I'm like, that's shockingly violent. And then I'm like, Raiders of the Lost Ark is shockingly violent. This is true. It's, yeah. It's, there's always something shockingly violent happening in indie movies or unexpectedly, you know, brutal at some point. So. That sort of fits in there, but uh, you know, we've I've been talking about how, like, usually these stories and and Michelin and Michelini especially like hits those beats of the indie stories of of the action of them, right? And the way they go, and this one is not doing that. No, it has some elements in there, but it's not propelled forward. It's only propelled by a sense of. You know, finishing off the story and and getting everybody dead or where they belong. You know, so there isn't. Right. You know, there's a little. You know, he's gonna swing from the whip and and stuff like that. But you know, his escape from the crabs is not especially uh, witty. Even you know, even no, though it's Katanga that saves him. You yeah. know, there could have been more. He basically just comes and brushes all the <laughs> the crabs away. Well, you know, not only is is Indy's escape from the death trap, which is a pretty cool death trap, not only is it not exciting, it's not thrilling, it's not particularly inventive, but then remember at the end of the last issue, Katanga jumped over the side of the Bantu wind, and those guys opened fire into the water, and we see blood coming up and everything, and it really, by the way it was drawn and the way the story was told, it didn't look like, like, how the hell could he possibly survive that? And then in here, he just kind of sloughs it off like, oh, yeah, well, I can hold my breath a long time. And, you know, and I, I scraped my arm on a yeah. barnacle and that was the blood. Right. And it's and like, he doesn't have really? a bloody shirt even. Yeah. As a matter of fact, his clothes are like clean pressed and, you know, <laughs> he's he's got his hat on, you know. Right. Yeah. It just didn't. Yeah. Now, I'm us- I, I usually pride myself on being really well aware of like old-timey sayings that have kind of gone out of style from like the early part of the 20th century, but there is one here. I had to look it up. I'd never heard this before. Uh, Jones is when he's taken over the submarine. The submarine surfaces next to the Bantu wind, and he's calling over to Emerald, and he says, Ahoy the ship! He says, Throw down all your weapons and surrender at once, or we'll blow every man-jack of you out of the water. And I thought, what the hell is a man-jack? Never heard. Have you ever heard that before? I've never heard that before. I, I looked it up, and it's a legit term. It basically means all of you. But I was like, uh, "What the hell is that?" I'd never heard that expression before. I thought that was really weird. 
Why in the hell would you waste time bringing... They bring the booty out of the temple, load it onto the submarine, simply to drive the submarine over to the Bantu Wind and transfer the cargo again. Uh Why the hell would you do that? Why don't you just park the Bantu Wind up at the dock and load it straight to the ship? Which is what the Bantu Wind is made to do. Exactly. That made no sense. I would imagine that putting cargo... Into Down a little a, submarine hole. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be a complete pain in the ass. Why? Why would you do it? And then why would you do it twice? It made no sense whatsoever. It, it's like it was done simply to stall for time, while Indy solved his little problem and was able to get aboard the submarine. That's the only reason I can figure that was done in that part. But it just logistic, logistically made no sense at all. My last note for this was really my biggest nitpick of the entire issue. This thing where Indy comes up with a rather clever plan, I thought, of ejecting debris and a dead body out of the torpedo tubes to fool the Japanese into thinking that the sub's been destroyed. And Hiroto sees immediately through the ruse. And I'm thinking, you know... It's this kind of shit is why I hate Grand Admiral Thrawn, that everybody else seems to love and think is such a wonderful Star Wars character, and I keep seeing these damn things on the internet with people going, man, if they really wanted to make a great Episode Seven, they'd adapt those those Thrawn novels. Uh-huh. I hate that goddamn character, and here's why. Because <laughs> he, he's supposed to be this like incredible tactical military genius and he got that way because he studies the native art of the planets that he, you know, the Takes people. That, and I'm like, what? Come on, really? And it's the same bullshit here, you know? I mean, he immediately, this this Hiroto guy, looks at all the debris, looks at the body and goes, yeah, I don't buy it. I'm like, why, why not? <laughs> why? What? What is giving you any cause to suspect that there's anything other going on here than what it appears to be. If they're going to make these brilliant you know, deductive leaps in logic then give me the logic trail that they're following. Let me follow it too so that I can go, okay, yeah I see that. It might just be intuition with him, I guess. I guess, but I mean, then say that. Put that in the story. Well, my my captain's sense tells me that this is a false trail. Okay, well alright, I can buy that. But when you just tell me, no, I don't buy it, and give me nothing, it doesn't make my, to me, it doesn't make your guy look like a brilliant military leader. It makes him look like, well, we need this coincidence to play out in order to move the story forward. And that's exactly how this feels, and it's exactly how I feel like those damn Timothy Zahn novels work with that Thrawn character. Like, he's not really so much brilliant as that the writer's really shit at connecting dots A, B, and C. You know uh-huh. what I mean? <laughs> uh, so I don't buy it. It doesn't work for me. It, it right. actually poke. It actually pokes more holes in the story than it fills in for me, and and just doesn't work. Well, I think they just had this to just sort of introduce him for later because he just sort of comes in here and is sort of watching everything from the sideline and just sort of incidental to the story, right? And then he goes away at the end. Yeah. I really, you know, based on the art and those final two pages and based on the wonky dialogue, I really do get the sense that something was changed at the end. Because just in those last two panels, the captain all of a sudden sinks the enemy sub, he kills Emeralda, and then he even acknowledges that the ship seems to me a little strange, maybe they should investigate, and then goes, 
nah, and then they just drive off. And then you got the little thing at the end that's a teaser for the next issue story. And that's it. I'm telling you. It's two pages. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it was to squeeze that epilogue in. Yeah, something's funny. Indy, in that next to last panel, Indy looks more like uh, Ichabod Crane. Yeah. Uh, He looks like Ichabod Crane or David Banner, or I mean, uh, like Bruce Banner more than he looks like Indy. Lost weight, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, not. Not good. Really not good. <laughs> the art looks more like a coloring book than it looks yeah. like a comic book. It's just, I'm sorry, but it's just not good. I do like the Secret Wars. Do you have ads in your, you're looking at a CBR. No, I'm not looking at a CBR. Oh, what a shame. Man, there's some good ads. There's an <laughs> ad for Joust coming to the Atari. Oh, I remember that. Joust. It was terrible. Ad for the Mar- the official Marvel tryout book, which I understand there's actually uh, some uh, some actual pros got their start using the Marvel tryout. I want to say Todd McFarlane, I think, was one I, of I, th- I thought I'd heard that, too. I think there's others as well, but I think he's probably the most famous one, if, if I'm correct, and it was Todd McFarlane. See what else we got. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. I love this ad. It was actually the cover to the first issue. I actually have a T-shirt of this. It's really cool. Do you remember Secret Wars? Oh yeah, yeah. I used to have them, I believe. I love that. That's about it. Masters of the Universe video game. Never played it. That's about it. Oh, and Cubert on the back. I, I like this. Is a classic Cubert ad. Cubert coming to the home system, but it was one of those ads that showed you every different screen of all the different systems. So you could look at it and go, wow, Atari 2600, shit. But like man, crap. this Atari like 400 looks fabulous. You know, it's like all That's... these other, every system was better than the one that you had. You know? I think the 400 was actually sort of like the home computer. So yeah. it was more like the Commodore or something like that, or the yeah. Amiga. Some of them actually look pretty damn close. Like the Commodore 64 actually looks pretty close to the uh, actual arcade version. But yeah, most of them. Because they had the firepower for it because it was more of a computer than a. Right. In a home system. Yeah. Well, before we leave, I just wanted to mention a few of our Demonzicorp bastards. <laughs> I mentioned it in the last, in our commentary monthly Monday, which you were not in, but right. I don't blame you. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, you and I, the last comic, the last monthly Monday you and I were together in was episode 400, which was a comics monthly Monday. And we didn't really do it, you know. It was a it was a comics monthly Monday. You did announce the return of um, JSA, which sort of was a big deal, I think. But at the time we were recording that episode, we even realized it was going to be episode four hundred. I think I we did, I, but did we, we were just sort of like, hey, you know, that's right. This is going to be four hundred, and you know, and we were neither of us had time or anything. By the time we realized that n- neither of us had time or. To, to do anything, you yeah. know, to plan anything and then do it. Hell, so. in the interest of full disclosure, guys, we are barely getting the friggin' show out on time. <laughs> I mean, I, there's just no lying any, about it anymore. I mean, we are literally recording it. Yeah, like, the shows are fresh. Let's just yeah. put it that way. When yeah. You hear, they're, they're, they're a lot, they're not weeks old. That's yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Maybe we'll get ahead again someday. We're trying. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we're, we're keeping them pumping out. So an episode like, Episode 200 took us like a couple months of work on the side and everything to do. And it was just like, it was grueling. But anyway, 
We didn't have to do shit, though, <laughs> because Scott Rifon apparently organized pretty much all of the Demanza Corp crew to do a little clip show sort of tribute to us, and it was just awesome, man. I, they, it's one of those things where I'm the kind of cynic. I'm my evil, um, my my you know, evil. Um, alter ego is the the spoiler, and I like to think that nobody could uh, get something over on me without me fi- get it, catching wind of it at least a little bit, or at least having a little whiff of it. I did not see this coming no. at all. No, I didn't either. Not at all. And then when I saw it, I was just like, or heard it. It, it was just great and entertaining, incredibly well put together. And then I remember talking to you, and I'm like, hey, have you listened to this yet? And you're like, no, what is it? And you're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, no, you got to listen to this now. And I'm like, Scott's going to, he's going to cry, man. I, <laughs> he I, I, know it I, yet. <laughs> I was, I was legit moved by it. it, it yeah, it was it, awesome. It was, yeah, it really was, uh, it was moving. I, I was, I was deeply, deeply touched to the point where, uh, the same day that I heard the same, uh, you know, because I listened to it that morning and everything, and mm-hmm. and posted responses to it and everything. I went ahead and threw it on my phone, and uh, it just so happened that uh, I was taking my wife and my boys, and we I forget where we went that day. We went somewhere, and while we were in the car, uh, I played it for them. Now my wife, who is the best word I could I could use to describe her in two in relation to two true freaks is barely tolerant. You I know? was going to say tolerant. That's about it. You know, and and every once in a while I'll play things for her that we've done on the show, thinking, "Oh, this is so brilliant. This is so hilarious. She's going to laugh," and she'll just look at me and just like shake her head, like, "Oh, you're just you're so stupid." You know, but you've cracked her up a few times. Uh, a few though. times, but but not like this. She heard that thing from Rife and just laughed through the whole damn thing. And she, it was, I mean, just like raucous laughter, like, oh my God, this is hysterical. So, I mean, even she thought that it was, she thought it was impressive. She, she thought it was very, uh, very funny. But I think what she really liked was that a lot of it was kind of taking the piss out of the both of us. So she got well, a kick out of that, you know? That's how it should be. I heard all that stuff and that stuff cracked me up. But the stuff that got me is that the, it's, I, I'm, I'm just so damn proud of that get off your ass and make a podcast show mm-hmm. because it has launched a bunch of podcasts and that's just way beyond what we thought. I mean, I mean, really, pretty much we just did that show because we had the idea for it. That was at the time period where we'd be going, let's do a show about this, you know? Hopefully it doesn't come across in that show as... Uh whatever but i i suspect a lot of the reason why we did the initial show that we did the very first show that we did of get off your ass was because we were kind of doing it as a rebuttal to the way we felt like we were treated by guys that had been around for a long time when mm-hmm. at the time that we came in because we had just done an interview with some guys and hated it so much that we never released it so i think we kind of did it as kind of a poke in your eye to those yeah. I don't think it comes across that way when you listen to it, but that's that's the ironic thing about it. Well, it, that was what we were doing it for ourselves. Right. We were doing it because we were just like, geez. Because oh, I remember man. we did that interview, and yeah. I remember listening back to it. I'm like, these guys are hostile. Yeah. They're hostile to anybody else doing a podcast. They just think there's no reason for anybody else 
to do it at this point. Mm-hmm. And they were openly like discouraging about it, and we yep. were like, "What the hell? Yeah. Kind of, what is that?" Yeah, and you and you and I both talked afterwards, and we're like, "Did you like that? Did you have fun? Did you think that's something we need to put?" And we were both like, "No, that's that kind of sucked." Well, that so well, then we turned around and we did our own. good at in situations like that of being like, "Yeah, yeah," and just going on with the conversation. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were also people that we kind of looked up to, so I didn't want to go like. Well, wait a minute. That was, and I think we did gently, but the, you know, we didn't get into full like, hey, you know, well, come on. That's uh, it, it, basically. I think it was us sort of putting the proposition that like, wow, this is great. Anyone can do a podcast. And then after it, it was just sort of the squash. <laughs> well, no, it's a really little pond, and you don't need a lot of fish in there. And there's already some big fish in the pond, and it was just like. What was that like? Almost five years ago. Yeah, so longer, wrong, yeah. completely wrong. Yeah, hell, there's there's so many more now than there ever was at that time. I mean that that at that time, looking back at it now, it's just laughable because it was still in its infancy, and here they were thinking, well, you know, it's it's the pond is full, and we're the big we're the big fish, and it's like. Not only are they gone today, but there's there's a million more fish. So what I love about it is. And and we did that as sort of a rebuttal. Then it spawned some podcasts who we've ended up, most of them, work it, working with them in Two True Freaks. Yep. And it, I find myself in awe. Like, I believe you know, a lot of those podcasts have sur- surpassed us in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know? And whether it's listenership or just in sheer entertainment value... And stuff like that, you know. I mean, I hold Hey Kids comics in high regard, and every time I listen to, you know, Dinner for Geeks, I just like, you know, I I I envy their format, you know. <laughs> and, and they're the, all right, I guess. Yeah, they're they're okay. <laughs> and, and then when I hear Rifun's studio work that he does, you know, mm-hmm. and his his mixing work, well, oh boy, and. Sean Engel. Sean Engel has mixed stuff for Who True Freaks. People probably just assumed it was me. I'm just I'm proud of all of them. I mean, I I think, I mean, what a what a legacy, you know? I mean, I I, I there's times when I still look back and go, I'm not sure I, why I ever got into this in the first place, other than just to amuse myself. But it's nice. Well, now that- you just have to go back and listen to Project Four Hundred. Yeah, you know, and I, and I hear something like that, and I realize that you know what I mean, it really is a, a wonderful feeling that you you've created something that people legitimately care about. You know that they look at and and they they see a, a value in it beyond just you know that they they got a laugh or they got you know learned a little gleaned a little something about you know nerd them that they maybe didn't know before that that it's something that goes beyond that to you know an emotional connection to us i think i just i think that's nice i think that's you know that's a wonderful legacy so well, it, yeah i was it, very very touched it got me like there's this one job that i worked at for a long time put a lot of time into it and then i was going to another job put in my two weeks notice and that job you generally you know that was just generally the way it was somebody would cycle out even if they've been there for a long time you know and then they'd be gone that's how it works in 
in jobs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my last day, whatever, um, one of, and this is where I maybe should have sniffed some bullshit, but, you know, one of my coworkers was like, hey, you know, we're going to be watching, um, I think it was Big Top Pee Wee or so, something that I couldn't resist, but wasn't obvious, like Star Wars. And I was like, oh, I'll go watch Big Top Pee Wee. And then I go in and it's a surprise party for me. They got a cake with my face on it and a knife for me to cut into it and stuff. And like one of the kids that worked there had made a banner for me. And I did not see it. And I was working with these guys every day. I sh- I, I'm like the master detective. I should have sniffed out <laughs> any kind of plot. Nothing. And that's the same way this thing this thing hit me. It's like, wait, what's this on the feed? I, what's What? This looks interesting. Wait a minute. <laughs> Duh! So, yeah, thanks, everybody. It was amazing. And everybody has their little theme. And it was funny because I was just like, I wonder what the hair metal hero is going to get. And I heard one part that could have been him, and I'm thinking to myself, not yet. Not yet. And then I hear the Ingve Melmstein which has several distinctive bumps, bump, and I was just pumping my fists in the air because I knew Hair Metal Heroes next. <laughs> so well done, well played, Scott Rifen. In the bastard. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True Freaks. Freaks.